Hello, and welcome back to Box Popcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Wayne Wise. How's it going, Wayne? Okay, how about you, Mav? I'm doing crappy. I just I screwed up my computer like half an hour before we went on the air. Um, <laughs> broke, my, broke my keyboard. I'm not doing well. If anybody has an R key for the most recent revision of MacBook Pro that they don't want and they can just mail me the R key, I would really just, appreciate just, it. Just the R key. Okay. Yeah, because it broke off and I cannot find it. So, um, And it's also going to be very hard to finish typing a dissertation without using the letter R. So <laughs> you're just you're just not trying hard enough. See, you can't say most of the words in that sentence. <laughs> it really sucks. So anyway, that's how my day's going. How's yours? <laughs> <laughs> Nothing nearly that tragic. I, uh, yeah. Although we've, we've re, we need to find tragic in the era of the pandemic. So yeah, yeah. Well, not a pandemic show this time. <laughs> what? No, no, we're gonna do something completely different. Um, and uh, you know, we're gonna dispense with like all the usual like craziness that we do when we're opening the show because we've got a full show we've got several guests and we're going to do something crazy it's a syllabus show we've done these before hooray (laughs) so for people who have not heard our syllabus shows before every once in a while we like to do a special show where we say what would we do if we were teaching a class on and then insert pop culture concept here so we did one where we did um where we did a class that was just sort of an upper level class on comics. And then we did one that was like an entry level class on monsters. And now we thought let's do one where rather than doing just comics, we're going to do very specifically a very specific comic or set of comics or comic related uh, material because it might be movies, could be anything. We're going to do the X-Men. Um, because um, that's not a broad topic. No, it's not. It'll be, it'll be fine. This will be really, yeah, really yeah. easy. This will be fine. Oh, yeah. Um, since we're going to do this, uh, like all the other syllabus shows, we tried to invite a, a full panel of experts from various walks of life. But everyone on the show today has taught comics in some capacity um, at on the university level. So I'm going to go down the list. Uh, the first person returning to the show. Uh, you've only been on once before, but this is Caitlin, a friend of mine, colleague of mine at Duquesne at, at school that I'm at. So, hey, Caitlin. Hi, Matt. <laughs> Welcome hey, back. Caitlin. Welcome back. Hello. Hi, Wayne. Thank you. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. And Caitlin, you, you have you, you've read a superhero comic or two. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I've, I've read a couple in my day. <laughs> <laughs> so that's why you're here. And we're uh, so real briefly for everybody, just let everybody know what you do at UK. Yeah, so um, I specialize in representation of black culture. And so how comics and graphic novels kind of fit in that is I try to think about like the ways in which blackness is visually represented, um, more specifically um, black female superheroes um, and how they've emerged over time and chronology and like what those representations have looked like. So that will hopefully be relevant here. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yeah. I, so. yeah. I love me some storm. I love it. <laughs> and next we have Anna, who's been on the show before as well. Hey, Anna, welcome back. Hello. Hey, Anna. Thanks for having me again. Yeah. And you've also read at least two or three comics in your life. <laughs> yeah, at least two or three. And like most Excalibur issues about 10 times. <laughs> that's more than me and that's sad. <laughs> i love excalibur i didn't you know i, I actually think it's a um you're referring to the uh, claremont and davis run on excalibur the classic excalibur um which i thought was a great book that doesn't get a lot of play anymore so i well, assume you're gonna I'm be here, mentioning that's something why i'm here repping it 
but yeah, do, do you, I'm a postdoctoral fellow at Brock University. Um, I kind of specialize in comics and pop culture and superhero stuff. I'm teaching a superheroes course right now, and I have got a really fun anthology coming out that just was available for pre-order today called Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. So I do a lot of stuff about representation and sexuality and gender, hence my interest in X-Men, which mm-hmm. has a lot of interesting things to say about all of those things. I wonder if we can like trick people into just ordering lots of the books by just pretending it's just straight up porn and not like academic criticism. It, talk, it, talk, it talks about porn and there are penises in it. So, yeah. I mean, maybe there, that's a selling point. I did. Like, that I, think, I think the, the fifth page is Batman's penis. So just yeah, it's a selling point, right? <laughs> I, when, I, when, I taught my, when I taught my comics class at Duquesne, I, I literally called it sex, violence and comics because. I knew that if I called it gender violence in comics, um, not as many people would show up. So I just like made them the, it's like, ah, mm. you're here already now, sucker. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and finally we have returning. It's been a while. Uh, Chris Gobbler is a another <laughs> scholar friend of ours. Hey, Chris, welcome back. Thank you. Thank you. It's very good to be back. And Chris, you've read, and this is scary, at least four comic books in your life. <laughs> Possibly five, but I, I tend to skim. I actually focus. I really just, I'm not kidding. Look at the pictures. I tend not to read the words. <laughs> readings, for, readings for chumps. You know? <laughs> That's why, why we do this. That's why we're into comics. <laughs> no, uh, Chris, you, you are a professor at? Washington and Lee University, yeah. and you, yeah, and you also, uh, you also have, you have several books out on comics. We're talking about before the show. I do, so. I do. I have three out and two forthcoming. Mm-hmm. So this should be exciting. Everyone here is Red X Men. You know, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that we were supposed to have um, uh, another guest, Andrew Demon. Is that how you? Is this his last name, Anna? Uh, yeah, Andrew Demon. Yes, yeah. yeah, yeah. close enough. And he, <laughs> Yeah, Andrew was, you know, having technical difficulties and couldn't join us for the show. But I said I promised I'd pimp his um, his website project, um, his Twitter project. Um, Andrew, if you're if you follow uh, the Claremont run on Twitter, that's him. And he's a colleague of Anna's and her co-host on her podcast. Can you just tell people on his behalf what the Claremont project is? Because it's people will see why it would have been super relevant yeah certainly can yeah he's doing uh it's like a publicly funded like the big national research institute in canada is funding it it's a study of curse claremont's 16 year run on uncanny x-men um he's done a lot of really great archival research he's interviewed claremont he's reviewed his papers at columbia university and it's a real like um public outreach project as well so like he's doing a lot of sort of um you know, video discussions on YouTube and like the Twitter account has been amazing where he's just really making academic analysis of X-Men digestible to like a really wide audience. And like his Twitter account has gotten super popular. Like, I mean, you know, for an academic account about X-Men to have like mm-hmm. thousands of followers is like pretty good. Yeah. So like he's which getting is, up there. Yeah. Which is kind of why we wanted him on the show today. But <laughs> the technology yeah, wouldn't he's work. Like, <laughs> yeah. One of the foremost experts. And I'm so sad experts, that he's not here. Oh. Yeah, we'll do a follow up because, you know, I'm sure we can talk about X-Men again. <laughs> yeah, um, I, I, I wasn't ready, but yeah, the foremost experts, I should have done this. 
Damn, but I, <laughs> I missed it. I'll have to save that for next time. Um, but anyway, you know, we've got a lot of show today, so we're going to hit, hit the ground running. If you've heard the syllabus shows before, the way we do this is we come into this show with no plan other than what if we were going to teach it, teach a, a, a course on this thing. Uh, Chris, you were on the very first one we did. You were on the comics one we did. And what we'll do is, you know, we all have um, different ideas of what goes into a course, even though we've all taught them. We all have different agendas. We don't know what the course is going to be. We don't know what's on each other's lists yet. We didn't share them ahead of time. So we're going to try and figure out what the goals of this course would be and then kind of uh, roundtable around some suggestions. And then we're going to whittle it down to um, you know, 10, 10 ish, 10 to 12 books that, you know, you could go out and read in order to like sort of learn something about X-Men. What that something is, is what we're going to decide in the next few minutes. So, <laughs> so that's what we're going to do. It should be exciting. It should be fun. Um, what's this course about? X-Men. <laughs> okay. Done. Thank you for joining us, everybody. <laughs> no, um, yeah. Well, X-Men's a big topic. It's a comic that's been going on for when's the first issue? 63, uh, I think. 63. Yeah. So, so for so almost 60 years, 50 something years, 57. I don't do math anymore. <laughs> yeah, I mean, come on, you're like a mathematician, are you not? You're a computer programmer. I don't do that anymore. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So there's a lot of X Men out there. There's a lot to sort of talk about. And, and maybe we should start out just for those who don't know, which I don't know anybody who'd be listening to this podcast who doesn't. What are the X Men, Mav? So what's, the basic, <laughs> what's the basic premise of the X-Men? <laughs> the X-Men are a, uh, well, in its first incarnation, the X-Men are a group of superhuman teenagers who have powers for no other reason than that we, they were born with them. They have, they are mutants for, you know, um, Stan Lee got tired of coming up with origin stories. So he just said, what if people had had their genes mutated by atomic energy so they just had kids who were just born with powers and go now i don't have to explain anything ever again because stan was lazy and that's <laughs> and, and that's where the x-men came from and he called them mutants and his publisher said what's a mutant and he's like um and stan explained it and he said no one's gonna know what that is so stan said what if we call them x-men for their extra powers and the publisher was like, I love it. And Stan's like, perfect. And no the one ever thought of the fact that, puns. Yeah. And <laughs> they thought that no one's going to understand what that means anyway, but it was too late because they were already publishing it. So um, the original classic X-Men team was Professor X was their leader. And it had Cyclops, Iceman, Jean Grey, who called herself Marvel Girl at that time. But it's a whole big confusing thing that we're not going to get into. Um, Angel and the Beast. And then since that time, they've had approximately 14 billion other members that have been that have floated into and out of the team. Probably the most famous of which is Wolverine. If you've seen the superhero movie and it had Hugh Jackman in it, that's an X-Men movie. That, that's who the X-Men are. <laughs> Good, good job. Yeah, that's well, my, quick, my, my, my quick summary. <laughs> well, I mean, other um, than to maybe, because we're going to talk presumably about the significance of the mutant metaphor, but I mean, as, yes. in terms yeah. of that being sort of one of the uniqueness, 
one of the unique, because I mean, even in that original, like Lee Kirby version of the X-Men, sort of the idea that they're uniquely persecuted because they're born with these powers and are the next stage in human evolution becomes very foundational. And it wasn't handled with super a lot of sophistication, that original run. But you right. do have the introduction of the Sentinels and like the government persecuting mutants specifically. And that's sort of their mm-hmm. unique niche within that Marvel universe in which lots of superheroes are persecuted and hated by the public, but the X-Men particularly so. Mm-hmm. So they've yeah, they've gone on to be a metaphor for you know every social issue that we have encountered since 1963 um uh, depending on the any outsider can identify yes and absolutely and they've been used as a metaphor for race for gender for sexuality for religion uh and they you know (laughs) again it's yeah for nerds (laughs) or um they've had they've had their version of an aids crisis they've had any number of political and social issues that whoever the writer is at that time feels like sort of dumping into into the story um sometimes handled better than other times and when they don't have anything else to do there's just fights and sex and reincarnation <laughs> yeah. more, more more often than you would think. Yes. <laughs> so that's the X-Men we'll talk about. And there's also a lot of related properties. Um, there's the movie New Minutes, which for our box office game is on Wayne's schedule. <laughs> um, we will, but we, we will talk about other specific areas and runs as they become relevant because there's there's way too much for us to get into everything. So that's our yeah. quick synopsis, I guess. Yeah. And so, then the fact that X-Men deals with all those issues of representation is why we're yeah. arguing you can do a whole course on it because it's sort of yes. the pinnacle of the superhero yeah. genre in terms of some of those themes. Yes. Right. So again, what is this course? Is the course on that or is the course on something else? I don't know. As I was going to say, for a course, maybe our, our first thing we should come up with is rationale. What What's our, on the syllabus, what's the reason for taking this course? Well, I think with X-Men, you know, one of the things that is most appealing for any demographic is this, it's this commentary on like the human condition, right? It's not just good versus evil. It's so, it shows like how complicated humans can be and like how we handle difference, right? And so I think if we're going to think about like how we construct this course, and especially around representation, that has to be essentially the ethos of the syllabus, right? Mm-hmm. I, w- I would agree. I don't see how you can yeah. teach X-Men and not have representation be like the main through line. Yeah, I don't disagree with that. But I mean, also, I mean, I would make a case for it as being a really good text for studying kind of evolutions of genre and long form storytelling, which I know Andrew would have been able to speak to so well if he was here because <laughs> that's the basis of his project. But, um, but yeah, but I mean, that's one of the things we were talking a little bit before the pod, which uh, I love when I make a reference to the conversation you guys haven't heard. But, um, but that, X- that X-Men, for as teachable as it is, is also very unteachable. So yeah. like in part because it has this long form storytelling, which is one of the most unique and wonderful things about it and yet also one of the things that makes it the hardest to teach. So figuring out exactly how you do a course is really hard. Well, I, I think teaching comics in general, that, that's always going to be an issue when you're dealing with you know, the major publishers anyway. They weren't designed to be, here's a story. You know, when you're teaching any of this stuff, you're teaching 80 years worth of quote unquote continuity. And, and how mm-hmm. do you do that? What stories do you pull out? How do you approach, you know, say long form storytelling, but in you know, a long form that I don't know that exists in any other any other media let's teach war and peace but only chapters 12 through 15 <laughs> yeah. yeah yeah exactly yeah how, how do you pull that out because essentially what what makes comics work and not work is this multiple creators over a course of say in the case of the x-men 60 years with how many dozens of creators talking about these characters 
So as a consistent narrative, it's not. No. <laughs> the fact it's been going on so long, and I think this is generally true um, of superhero comics, you have this opportunity for discontinuity, which I think is actually significantly more interesting. Um, there's there's multiple meanings of um, representation. Um, in terms of storytelling, obviously the form is visual, and whenever you have a change in artist, that can radically alter the nature of the world. And we Absolutely. tend to think of it more as narratives in literary terms. But if you look at uh, comics, and particularly X-Men comics, as visual art form, some very strange things are happening. And so finding examples of the same characters represented differently by different artists, it sort of... Um, I find this fascinating, but it sort of undermines the idea of a, of a continuous world in which if characters can look radically different from one issue to the next because a new artist has taken over, what does that say about that world? Are we actually, are these, is a panel a window into that world or is it something else? That's something yeah. I would definitely want to teach if I was doing a course that was specifically on X-Men. I mean, I have some of those conversations when I teach a course specifically on superheroes, but being able mm -hmm. to focus on sort of one superhero franchise would be so useful that way. Because I mean, yeah. one of my frustrations with a lot of kind of the scholarship that exists on teaching comics is that it will be really focused on teaching those iconic graphic novels, which like is frustrating because it's sort of, to me, taking away some of the uniqueness of comics to take that mm -hmm. approach. Because I mm -hmm. mean, whether it's mainstream comics or indie comics, because there's so many indie comics that are long running as well that don't mm -hmm. work in conventional narrative patterns. So teaching, you know, how you can represent reality in unconventional narrative patterns is like exactly what's so exciting about comics and then we strip yeah. some of that away when we're not teaching it that way and when we're just teaching sort mm -hmm. of like chunks and graphic novels which can be like there's obviously a ton of value to that approach as well but like i am frustrated that you know like when i'm reading a book about how to teach comics and i've read several it's like often there's no approach offered to how to teach complex seriality because mm -hmm. it's just mm -hmm. considered almost mm -hmm. impossible and, and mm -hmm. i think that that's certainly one of the things that's developing just as comics academia grows and mm -hmm. that's something that hasn't been dealt with very much in other media and it's like you know the collective we have to figure that out mm -hmm. and that's what we're doing by trying to come up with an x-men course <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's, i mean it's always tricky for that reason as we said on the comic syllabus episode you know usually if somebody says they're going to teach comics in a class what they mean is they're going to teach Watchmen or Persepolis or what were the four or five watch, I mean, What they mean is Watchmen, mouse, Persepolis, Mouse, mouse fun, fun Home fun or home, yeah. um, what was the fifth one, Wayne? Do you remember what we said? It was like, no, I can't remember. Uh, yeah, I think we maybe, said, I think maybe we said, Jimmy um, Corrigan, maybe. Yeah. And, and it's like and, and it's like and you can leave. You know, if you can leave one of them out and it's not allowed to be Watchmen, it's, it's pretty much that's pretty much how comics courses go. And it's like, uh, yeah, OK, you know, and, but, and I think we've probably all done that. And yeah, and there's reason for it. And there's value mm -hmm. to that. But you're right. It completely leaves out so many other things. Right. And I think X-Men is interesting because it is, you know, one of the most recognizable, but because it is it's going to be hard because of that issue. So I think one of the first things that we need to like, I, I propose that we assume this class is a 300 or 400 level course. And the reason I'm saying mm -hmm. that is because I do not want to like, um, we're, we're presuming anybody who's taken this class has a basic understanding of comics as academia. You've already taken the course that we had before. You know, we're not teaching understanding comics in this class. We're not teaching Watchmen. 
We're not teaching Persepolis. We're not giving you that basic foundation. We assume that people know how to read comics and know how to read, how to analyze comics in order to do this class, because otherwise they're going to be lost by the time they get to Claire, to the Claremont run. Yeah. Um, well, are then, we are we assuming that this course is only comics? No, I don't. I, oh, I don't think God. so. Because um, because mine because <laughs> my list is not. So um, okay. I, I I do think it is very much focused on superheroes, particularly the X Men, which is not the case for the. I mean, the previous episode that we did on the comic syllabus, you know, we went out of our way to not just do superhero stuff, and I think this is very much not only going to be mostly superhero stuff, it's going to all be related to that one property. And I think given the influentialness of X-Men, you can make a case that you can teach a superheroes mm-hmm. course that's just X-Men. Mm-hmm. I think so. Oh, very. And I mean, I mean, just like you could, I mean, you could teach a literature course that is only Shakespeare. You can teach or, you know, or only Gertrude Stein. So I think you can do this. I, I think it's, I think, that, I think it is a reasonable, uh, a reasonable assumption to make. You know. And if we're expanding it into TV and movies and stuff, there's so many other things we can do. I mean, we could have the students watch Mutant X and mm-hmm. <laughs> tell them about how that existed, which could be really interesting. <laughs> uh, OK, so are, are we focusing on representation or are we focusing on specific? Like, are we going to like, I don't know that we need to do just gender representation or just racial representation or anything like that, because for me, one of the things that's most interesting about the X-Men is that it has been used as a metaphor for so many different types. Like uh-huh. I wouldn't limit, I wouldn't boil it down to uh, one of the things that people often say about X-Men over a course of its run is, you know, you can look at Professor X and, and Magneto as analogs of Martin Luther King and uh, Malcolm X, which I think is true, but also reductive. But I also yeah. don't want to limit it to just that because I think that I, I think that saying it's only a racial metaphor sort of limits what has yeah. been done with it over well, a long I, time. I, I think that concept so infuses X-Men just as a running theme throughout the course. If this is about representation, what do you recognize as representation with whatever we decide to read or, or watch? Mm-hmm. How, how do you see that? What is being represented here? How, how do you interpret that? Just as say, just a theme that runs through the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I was just going to like expand on that and just say, I don't think it's just representation, but like, what is the gaze in this issue? Right. Mm-hmm. Because you could look at like the, you know, uncanny X-Men and say like the gaze is obviously, you know, this like nuclear 60s um, focus, but like you could look at X-Women and that's like a completely sapphic gaze. Right. Like, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I think, you know, not only are the themes of representation happening, but like, how are we reading into these comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, fan culture is obviously a big thing that you can talk about with X-Men as well. But I mean, in terms of representation, too, and if we're talking about sort of long form storytelling and transmediality, you can look at sort of which types of representation are prioritized as the central aspect of the mute metaphor in different iterations, right? Like if we think of race as like a really guiding principle of the 70s comics, for instance, into the 1980s, whereas something like I don't even want to say Brian Singer's name, but the Brian Singer films definitely like play up like oh, the, the play up the queer context um, yes. of, of X Men, and that's become sort of a dominant reading of X Men in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Um, it was always present in the earlier iterations, but it's become much more dominant, I would argue, than the racial metaphors in the in the current era. I'd like to ask a question along those lines because um, I mean I think it's clear that the um, being a mutant is a is a metaphor, or rather, it's an open metaphor, uh, obviously open to multiple interpretations. Do you think that Stan Lee, when he introduced the characters, I guess it was 1963, 64, 
was that, you know, I was going to say his intention, ultimately his intentions don't matter, but I'm still kind of curious about the question. Do you think he intended it to be a metaphor for um, a range of difference? Or do you think that's been taken up by different later creators and sort of retconning that into the original character type? Stan is so hard to read because, I mean, much like the comics, Stan over his career um, contradicted himself left and right from minute to minute, like just in interviews. Um, So I'm not sure he even knows what he intended back then. Um, Certainly in the later years, he knew that he was writing a metaphor for inclusion. I think that I think that um, in the later years of both writing it, which he didn't do for all that long, Stan's actual timeline for writing and wasn't actually that long. But even narrating or um, the, you know, the animated stuff or like his his, you know, his writing about his being the face of Marvel Comics. He certainly knew eventually that that's what they had become, whether he intended it or not. And I don't know, you know, author is dead. I don't know if it matters. It actually is dead. But I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know that his intention mattered that much, especially since I'm not sure he even knew what his intention was. I I think his I think in general, he was fairly socially progressive and that informed a lot of his work. I don't know how conscious it was when he created Mm -hmm. X-Men particularly in, in 63 is I'm going to create a metaphor for inclusion. Uh, I, right. I, I think certainly, you know, informed his worldview and that that was probably there on some level, whether conscious or not. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean, I was saying before, I mean, the Sentinels get introduced in what, like issue like three or five of yeah, original yeah. X-Men. So it is really yeah. early in the run. Mm-hmm. And that is unique. Like, I mean, despite the persecution of other Martin. Uh, Marvel superheroes, especially Spider-Man and the Hulk, like to have mm-hmm. the government actually like cracking down on mutants in an organized fashion and like trying yeah. to exterminate them does make it a little bit different. And it's hard not to see mm-hmm. how there must have been some kind of I mean, let's not forget right. Jack Kirby worked on this as well. Like right. Jack Kirby was in World War Two, saw concentration camps. Mm-hmm. So like, I mean, mm-hmm. I don't think you can neglect that context in, in terms yeah. of thinking about X-Men and like the narratives of genocide that so often inform it. And they're both aware. I mean, Stan and Jack are certainly aware of the civil rights movement unfolding around them, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> at that time. You know, they're they they're not. Um, I mean, if you look at like Black Panther, you know, they, yeah, they, they are perfectly, but they do create Black Panther. Indeed. Right. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. I'm not saying which is not to say I'm not, I certainly wouldn't call either of them perfect, but they're <laughs> aware of the world. Right. And they're aware of the world unfolding around them and trying to address it in a way that um, that not necessarily all creators did at that point. So. Right. And I mean, you you got to think about Storm, too, right? Like she mm-hmm. comes in and, you know, there is no like real explanation of like her presence. She, you're just comp- like she's thrown into the canon and you're just supposed to take it on face value, you know? Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, Stan Lee was doing something. I don't want to say revolutionary because I feel like that's a loaded term. But I think that there's something unique there in the sense that he's just like, you know, we need to recognize that representation needs to come in more forms. And to have this like powerful black woman Mm -hmm. is just so like nuanced in the sense that like a lot of literature wasn't really giving that attention. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. That's my two cents. Well, we should note that Stan wouldn't have been involved in the creation of Storm specifically, but I mean, definitely in terms of laying that kind of found or groundwork. Yeah. yeah. That'd be uh, uh, Lynn, 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 yeah, yeah. Cockrum. Cockrum. Yeah. yeah. Um, but that's but again, and that's the 70s. I mean, Stan's Stan's editor in chief by then. Actually, he might have even been publisher by then. I think he was only editor in chief. Still involved for sure. But yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, it's so I mean, he's certainly he's certainly steering the boat, you know. Um 
I yeah. So okay, I think we have a general direction. I mean, I mean, maybe not- like sort of organized around like it's X Men, but it's organized around the mutant metaphor and what that means. Because I mean, yeah. if we organize yeah. it around metaphor, right, that like allows us to talk mm-hmm. about a lot of storytelling conventions and what is metaphor and what are the different uses that we can make of fantasy. Right. It can mm-hmm. intersect with a lot of sort of sci-fi and fantasy discussions that we might have. And as the metaphor is applied newly, it's inevitably also going to be an historical uh, overview of the United States. So, like, you know, mm-hmm. they're introduced right after the Cuban Missile Crisis. I think Magneto is actually causing a missile crisis in yeah. the first in the very mm-hmm. first issue. Mm-hmm. So you take that context. It's very much about um Stream uh, sort of the hot moment of the Cold War, and they. It's interesting because Lee's take on superheroes is, um, at least in the very early '60s, is that superheroes are dangerous. They're not like Golden Age superheroes that, that are perfect and we can just trust them. You know, when he introduced the Thing, when he introduced um, the Hulk, he was introducing monsters that could go out of control. Mm-hmm. And what I notice is that post Cuban Missile Crisis. That fear of superheroes, fear of you know nuclear power, that actually declines, and the um, the X Men is one of the first new group of superheroes that don't have that fear factor, if you will. They're not, you know, the thing originally was the idea of this of the Fantastic Four is that the other three were going to have to try to control the thing, and then the Hulk. If you read the original Hulks, those aren't even superhero comics; that's just a straight up monster. Um, mm-hmm. But when the X-Men came in, it was a return in some ways to the old school golden age superhero where these are just straight up good people. They'll take care of us. Mm-hmm. Um, but Magneto was where the complexity comes in because he wasn't, he wasn't Adolf Hitler. Mm-hmm. He actually, there was a way to read him as having a pro-social mission. It's just that his definition of society was mutant society. Mm-hmm. So there's a different kind of complexity that comes up. Um, really beginning with the first uh, round of um, X-Men comics. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. Mm-hmm. So is the, so to transition then into the, into, you know, actually going through our list, is that first run one of the things that we recommend for our X-Men class? Yes, I would teach the first three issues. Oh, yeah. same. Yeah. Yeah, that was on my list. There's a lot first of great issue. stuff in those first issues. Like there's a scene that I just love where they're all like changing out of their street clothes into their costumes. And there's just so many interesting metaphors bound up in it. Like there's such mm. a rhetoric of like shame and teenage angst and like Angel has to bind his wings under his clothes yeah. and you get a panel of him like unbinding them and like changing. And like that's really powerful in terms of talking about the mutant metaphor. I would definitely teach those early ones in the first <laughs> well, introduction of the Sentinels. And, and just metaphor of adolescence there. Yep. Very much. And the Me Too movement lens on that first couple issues is is mm-hmm. it's disturbing oh. to see Professor X kind of hitting on Jean Grey. Oh, yeah. Very um, much so. Oh, yeah. You know, it was like, jerk, as we was, all know. Yeah, we, we were to understand <laughs> that that was actually the, the, the romance there was between the professor and his teenage um, female student, and that was acceptable. That was, well, he, that was, he eventually that straight up says he loves her. He's like, oh, how do, what yeah. am I going to do here? And then they, <laughs> then that plot line just goes away. There's yes, like, it does. Uh, <laughs> it's never resolved. It's just like, uh, no, we have decided to think better of this. Luke and Leia never actually kissed either, right? I mean, yeah. yeah. But yeah, it, it is definitely, there are certainly implications of it, which I think are, um, 
I always like for anything like this, I always like to go with one of the earliest works. And in this case, the earliest work just mm-hmm. to lay a foundation mm-hmm. um, to say, where will this go? But I do think that when you're when you're laying that foundation, you can say, for instance, OK, how do we read these three issues in the context of it being 2020? And oh, my God, is, you know, mm-hmm. is that is he really flirting with this 15 year old student, this old bald man? Um, and that, I mean, that's certainly one thing to start with. But also, like you said, there's the um, we, we we've been talking about the metaphor for things like race and, you know, like the, the other communities. But um, at their essence, the X-Men are a bunch of people who just develop, you know, develop powers at adolescence, you know, because your body's going through changes and you might notice that, you know, <laughs> you grow hair and wings and odd places. You might notice that you have to strap down your wings. To- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. So, I mean, that's I mean, the trauma of adolescence is definitely something that I think yeah. probably um, probably not the kind of othering that your, you know, your college junior is going to immediately think of when they think of a, you know, of a othered community is just youth in general, particularly in 1963 in the wake of, you know, comics are still suffering from the CCA, which we've talked about on, on many shows and, you know, the wake of the, um, the Senate subcommittee hearings on, on, Mm. on juvenile delinquency, which had been less than 10 years. Um, but also you have a massively burgeoning youth culture across America at this time with the advent of just, you know, everything from rock and roll still growing to moving towards worrying about Vietnam and things like that. We're we're in a very weird youth place in America. That is the 60s. Yeah. And X-Men can for sure be a window on that. I would also say that you have to teach X-Men number one, because if you're going to teach the most popular comic book of all time, like X-Men volume two, number one from 1991, it is a direct redo of the original. So like you kind of need that to understand that. comic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So do we, so is that the second thing we want to put on the list of possible X-Men two, X-Men? Well, we want to jump all the way in there. Well, we don't have to go in order, but I mean, I'm just going to yeah. I'm going to I'm going to put it tentatively on the list for now, because what we'll do is we'll go through and make a big list and then we'll cross things off later. <laughs> it's not a comic book that I enjoy, but the fact that it is yeah. technically the best selling comic book of all time means you better talk about it in an X-Men <laughs> yeah. course. Yeah. yeah. And, and actually, it's not a hard as, read. as a mirror of that first issue, it makes sense to talk about it. But I would I would save that for later in the course. Mm-hmm. Um, I, from from that original run. And I, I don't think we should necessarily spend a lot of time with that original run. But I, I think. That the the later Neil Adamson story of Master I was going to say, yeah, yeah, I, I think that would be the next essential piece of that original run. You know, I, uh, off the top of my head, I don't know. I I do. So Neil Adams starts drawing X Men with issue number fifty six. I think that was in late nineteen sixty eight, and I um, I think he he only did about oh about ten issues. But I agree that Neil Adams. I would say that his artwork became the house style of both Marvel and DC through the 70s. Yeah. If, there's, if there's one artist who defined the next decade, the Bronze Age, if you like that kind of terminology, um, I think it's Neil Adams. And so, but then this is, a, this is an important question. If, as far as the history of superhero comics, it would be very important to, to, to have some Neil Adams in there. However, yeah. is that essential to this course that we're imagining? Um, well, I think Neil it's Adams, essential to Neil, understand sort of the complex yeah. publishing history of X-Men, though, as well. Yeah. And like, mm-hmm. you know, that they mm-hmm. were able to do some experimental things on that Neil Adams, and a yeah. part of how he was able to grow and become this influential artist because no one was reading that title. 
So yeah, I, I think like Neil Adams would certainly tell you that he was the most influential artist. In the <laughs> yeah. Um, well, it's nice well, I don't know. Adams- Wouldn't st- stiff competition from Steranko, maybe. Well, yeah, that's interesting. A- a- yes. Adams and Steranko, more or less at the same moment, they're the ones who redefined layout art. Yeah. In the yes. late sixties, and I'd say Stranko was a little more, a um, little more extreme. But he also his the number of works he did is actually surprisingly few. It's, it's um, like thirty. Yeah. yeah, I know. So he just sort of he burnt out, as far as I can tell. Whereas Adams had a much longer career. Yeah. But um, it's interesting because the, the Jack Kirby layouts, um, certainly with the um, the first issue of X Men, very rectangular, very row based, very straightforward. Um, unlike the stuff he did during um, uh, the Golden Age, which was, um, as far as layouts, wildly experimental. So it would be also fun to see Neil Adams working against the house model that Kirby had ad- mm-hmm. identified. So it really is a moment of visual revolution to go from Kirby to Adams. And, well, I, and, and you know, I think that's an important point. Yeah. And, and the, 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 the character work and emotionalism that Neil Adams really brings out too is maybe important for like the later mm-hmm. direction of X-Men. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. I also want to point out that the 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 real benefit of this to me is that that collection, which is um, for the record, it's um, 56 through 63 and then also issue 65. Um, that collection is um, in a convenient book that you can buy um, that's in print, <laughs> so, which is one of the hard things about teaching a comics course is always how do we get this material? Exactly. That, one, that one is a bound collection that you can just purchase. So that is a selling point for it. This course is going to be expensive. <laughs> yeah, this course is going to be this course is going to be potentially expensive. Um, yeah. On the other hand, you could also, and you know, one thing that one could do, and if you're following along and you want to read some of the stuff that um, that we're that we're mentioning, since this is all with one publisher, for the most part, yeah. most of the things that we're going to be talking about are on the Marvel Universe app that you can subscribe to. So, mm. which yes, if you're a student, a three month subscription would be worth it. Yeah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah, it's gotten a lot better. I was surprised when I, I resubscribed like a couple years ago, and I it was like a lot better than the last time. It has been an invaluable dissertation resource for me. <laughs> like, like I would not be able to finish my work if I, if I didn't have it. Um, and the DC one as well. So right. the DC one uh, you can't get in Canada. It's bullshit. Um, what? It's also yeah. it's also missing. It's also missing a lot of stuff. The DC one's not as good as the as the Marvel one, but um, but it does have the Harley Quinn TV series, which is um, worth it. Um, but that's a digression. And off air, you know. Maybe Anna will move into my house so she can have a U.S. address to subscribe. <laughs> oh, I could get quotes. a VPN or something if yeah. I was that committed. Yeah, that's what I was getting at. Um, anyway, so, all right, so I've written those down. What's the next thing somebody would suggest? Giant size, I mean, number one. We're going roughly chronological. Yeah. Yeah, I was like going to say, yeah, giant size, number one. Although I yeah. think there should be a footnote in there explaining how this was not published for a number of years. Yeah. Well, well, yeah, like we the, definitely, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And the characters would pop up here and there. Uh, the, 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 uh, physical change of the beast and amazing adventures, just as footnotes that these things happen. Oh, yeah. I would add that. I would add that. I'm, I'm voting for the physical change of the beast issue. I would add that. Yeah. Um, Because I think that's important for the whole body morph issues and, and Mm -hmm. yeah. It also (laughs) reveals something. You're a teen. You grow blue fur in weird places. It also shows that the beast transformed in the early 70s. That was related to the fact that um, the publishing industry was um, 
the comics industry was taking a pretty bad hit. They were looking for ways to um, yeah. get more interest going. So there was that's when all of the horror um, came back into comics. The um, Comics Code in 1972 was lightly revised to allow yeah. in. Um, and so the Beast transformation coincides with you know with the introduction of vampires and werewolves and, yeah. and you know so making him look like a monster was an attempt to appeal to that sort of new superhero horror that was around mm-hmm. yeah and that actually did happen in 1972 as well that like that's when um yep. in, a, in his solo adventures yeah. amazing, 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 adventures. amazing adventures number 11 which was actually 1972 is when it is when that happened right with those cca changes yeah so. Yeah. So yeah, I say I, I don't think spending a lot of time in the semester on that stuff is important. But I think it's important to at least address it, point it out. Agreed. Because I was trying to decide whether I was going to recommend like Andesenti's Beauty and the Beast uh, mini, and I was like, that would be in direct conversation with that. Ooh, yeah. yeah. Ooh, that's a good. That is a that is a good book that I have not read in many years. Yeah, or me I, either. In my head, it's a good book. I, I mean, whatever yeah, right. it up. Yeah, <laughs> that's not one I reread for this episode. Oh, that's, yeah. a, that's a good pull. I'm gonna, I'm gonna write it down. I kind of wish I'd reread it now too. I just sort of forgot about it until you were talking about Beast, and I was like, oh, that would be kind of a good deep cut one. <laughs> well, so I'm gonna write that down. So um, now, I, now I'm gonna write down the giant size number one. But here's where I have something that, I, that it's one of the things that on my list I I had a proposal that I think is interesting. Rather than teaching giant size number one or anything that came after uh, anything that came immediately after that, because I'm certain I'm certain that sooner or later we're going to start talking about the Dark Phoenix saga like we're going to have to. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. I oddly enough would recommend um, the run of X-Men classics or classic X-Men, depending on, when, on how they felt like printing the logo that week. But X-Men classic which was a 1986. 86. Okay. Um, yeah. Thank you. Um, I had one on my list. <laughs> okay. I, well, the first two volumes are collected, which covers like X-Men classics one through 44, which is basically giant size X-Men number one through the end of the dark Phoenix saga it is in mm. two trade paperbacks. Okay. Mm. And, That's pretty good. And, and now it's odd in that the way X-Men classics work, was um well eventually it became just reprints after like issue 44 yeah. after issue 44 but for issues 1 through 44 it was a reprint of the issue with some inserted pages in order to sort of connect it to changes in continuity that would happen later, which was always odd because it wasn't necessarily the same artist. Um, yeah. like they didn't necessarily get, which a lot of those early issues, for instance, were burned and they didn't get burned back. So, um, or they, or they got yeah. it back sometimes, but not always. So you just have like random art by whoever the house artist was that Claremont was able to snag to draw three pages of X-Men that were inserted <laughs> magically into issue 98 for no apparent reason, but there isn't uh-huh. a reason it sort of connects it to it sort of tries to make the the narrative more cohesive with Mm. that would have happened later and also each of those 40 those first 44 issues or at least most of them have a backup story that sort of expands upon something that was missing um yeah the so the, the very first one for instance um which i which i really enjoy has a story after the um after 
the giant size X-Men uh, covers the, uh, um, a rescue mission to, to Krakoa, um, which is a, a mutant island where people where the original team is, is dying. And so they've brought in a new team of X-Men. That's where Storm is first introduced and and uh, Banshee, Starfire, Thunderbird. Not Starfire. Yeah. Well, Starfire had been introduced. He's, he's there. Sun, he wasn't. Sunfire. 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 Sun, Sunfire. Oh, Starfire. Yeah, that's a different, different team. That's a different, different team, different, different universe. Maybe different we'll syllabus. Do an, maybe we'll do an X-Men uh, Teen Titans <laughs> syllabus one day. Um, but anyway, yeah, Sunfire. Yeah, all these um, all the X-Men characters that um, were the all new, all different X-Men. They start they show up. Colossus is there, Nightcrawler. Um, and after that story, um, the original team quits in the main in the original print. Well, there's a backup story that sort of talks about them sort of deciding to do that. And during that uh, during that backup story, you have the very first time that um, in classic X-Men, you have chronologically the first time that Wolverine and Jean Grey start flirting with each other while she's in a relationship with Cyclops. And it really it, like Claremont knowing what he was going to do with those characters later. Now he really starts setting the seams in the story that he's sort of inserted into mm-hmm. it, which I think makes well, yeah, it a more interesting read. So yeah. the first so, of the first of Claremont's many attempts to redo his own continuity. Yes. Yeah, well, yeah. yes. And, yeah. and the one that I accept as not bad, as opposed to some of his other things, yeah. which I've never, well, I have not. I'm assuming X-Men well, forever is not going to be on anyone's list, but I'll no, just it is not. Uh, and I hadn't considered the X-Men classic stuff. It's been so long since I read that, but I was going to, the you know, point I was going to make at this point of the syllabus is I don't know that you can do this class without starting at giant size X-Men number one and going through at least up through the end of days of future past as a whole piece. Mm-hmm. Right. Which is oddly yeah. enough. So oddly enough, days of future past is the next arc after dark Phoenix. Yeah. And mm. it is left out of the classic X-Men run for reasons which I could not figure out when I was yeah. doing research the yeah. last couple of days. Yeah, you can pick but, that up as a separate but, piece. So Yeah, you can, you can, pick, you can get it. <laughs> it's, yeah, it and, and I think it's absolutely essential. Mm-hmm. I was actually looking at one of the trades of Days of Future Past in preparation for the pod, and it collects another, like, it collects a bunch of weird stuff with it, yeah. including, like, the X-Men annual that's, like, Nightcrawler's Inferno, which is one of yeah. the most messed up, <laughs> like, things ever, and I really got caught up reading that. <laughs> it's a whole thing. He like has a birthday party and a really charming birthday party in which one of his presents from Wolverine is a picture of Wolverine. Um, <laughs> one of my favorite things ever. But um, yeah, his like, you know, sorceress foster mom accuses him of murdering her son and they have to go to hell and figure it out. But it turns out he did kill him, but because he was evil and then she forgives him. And then Nightcrawler's girlfriend is like, oh, I was like, actually, your sister all along. And he's like, into it. (laughs) (laughs) It ends with everybody hugging and it's just like, what the F? And like, that has screwed up Nightcrawler's continuity to this day. Wow. Yeah. I'm particularly yeah. here promoting Nightcrawler as well, so I need to start working in more Nightcrawler content. <laughs> <laughs> the, Not one of the, his the, finest the, moments, though. So fine. I, I actually like Amanda Sefton, and yeah, the sister thing's weird. You know, let's yeah. not talk about it too much. Do it's not just, tell. <laughs> do, okay, I'll just tell you: do not tell Nightcrawler fans that you like Amanda Sefton because they hate Amanda Sefton. I know they're wrong. There is like a whole <laughs> subgenre of fan fiction that makes her like evil and like I know. guilty of sexual assault and like all of these things. Oh, I'm aware. She's not popular. <laughs> I'm I'm kind of a defender of hers too, but like uh, I just I was surprised to encounter that. <laughs> 
Okay, so yeah, so but yeah, so I definitely, yeah, I definitely concur with Days of Future Past as sort of a as sort of a a connection. Um, and it's sort of weird because you know we were talking about before the show when I, when when I was making my list, and I wonder how many other people had this thing. I was like, well, usually when I do a syllabus, I want to try to get be well rounded, and I want to try to get as many authors in as possible and show diversity. And then I got to this, and I'm like, and that Claremont story, and that Claremont story, yeah. and that yeah. Claremont story. Oh, well, he wrote the book for 82 years. Of course, yeah. it's going to be awesome. It's actually well, like 16, but you know. Well, to, to back up a little bit, like the, the stuff up through, say, from Giants size up to the end of the dark phoenix saga i mean so much of the dark phoenix saga for me and i'm speaking as someone that i read that stuff as it came out i bought giant size x-men number one off the rack oh, i had a subscription wow. starting with number 98 wow grandpa so, you're old yeah i know, I, you know <laughs> yeah, i'm right there with you right yeah. there with you um and you like there's the there's the dark phoenix trade paperback which starts out essentially in the last third of the dark phoenix saga right. and without all the build-up you're missing so much of the emotional resonance, the character building, everything that went to it. Yeah, she's so evil. I, so what? Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. It, it's the same. It's the same problem as when we discussed, you know, on previous yeah. shows where we talked about the the Judas contract, which doesn't work if you just start with yeah. The trade paperback starts with the reveal on like page fucking three, and then like yeah, no. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I I think if there's any run of, of X Men comics that are essential to teach the entire thing in this course, it's giant size up through the end of at least the burn run. And mm-hmm. probably, I say there's the Dark Phoenix saga, which is then finished, followed by Days of Future Past and the two Canada issues, mm-hmm. which I really like. But I don't know how essential they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but but I, I think teaching all of that just for and that that's a way of teaching the way comics work. This month to month continuity of this builds, this builds. There's no beginning. There's no real end. Keep introducing subplots. It will go on forever. Um, so the early like Claremont saying, run is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But in but in that run, Claremont also introduces about 98 percent of what everybody who followed him rehashed for the next 30 years. Yes. Uh, well, can we can of- we can we back up and talk about why giant size next, number one is so essential, like kind of yeah, a new yeah, standard that it right. sets for X-Men? Yeah. And, and yeah, you're, you're right. We should. Um, because we, we all know this, so we're sort of jumping ahead. Yes. Giant size X-Men number one. Meet the new team. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So, uh, the X-Men actually, I believe had been on rerun for five years before yes. that happened. Yeah, they, they did mm-hmm. 64 then, through 96, 95, something like that. Nine, nine, 93. 93. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And then, yeah, it was, they were reprinted for, for what, 30 some issues, however many that adds up to. But then it was actually out of publication for three or 40 years. There was no explanation for, for a period of time. And and those characters were guest starring in, in other books, Marvel team up with Iceman, you know, that kind of thing. Um, Iceman and Angel were in the champions for a brief period of time. Later, yeah. Beast becomes yeah. no Beast became a yeah. defender later, but he's but he's got a solo his his turning gray then blue was an amazing adventures. Which right. Yeah. So it became so an adventure a time where they, they were X Men were referenced in the Marvel universe, but they didn't have their own title. So Giant Size X Men number one came out as a what double size issue. And at the time it felt really radical. I mean, you know, the Avengers would have team changes or whatnot, but it, it was always, they would bring people in and they just sort of gradually came in. This is a book like, okay, here are seven characters that you've never heard of before. And they're going to be the team now. And, and we'll specifically keep- in terms of it, it being, 
But in terms of it being kind of like a metaphor for multiculturalism as well, it's such yes. an important turning point because yes. they're going and assembling mutants from all around the world. And yes. specifically, um, in many cases, countries that were at war with the United States in World War II, which is significant in terms of yeah. this being a post-post-war superhero comic that is yeah. trying to kind mm-hmm. of repair some of those rifts, but also appeal it, to an international audience as well. Because mm-hmm. it was, it was overtly. Here's here's a Russian member. Here's mm-hmm. here's a Japanese member. Here's a German member. Yeah, German member. Uh, African. Here's that African, African member. African member. Native here's American. A, it's crazy. This, this weird Kate Canadian. Which yes, and yes, we know Africa is um, a continent and not a country. <laughs> a um, yeah. I, I would argue that Lynn Lynn Wine did not know that when he had yeah. a story because <laughs> <laughs> um, she is because because that's what they do. They go, we're going to get an Irish guy, we're going to get a Canadian guy, we're going to get a Russian guy, a German guy, and an African woman. Well, from, you know what's from, from funny? Country in Africa, <laughs> Wakanda, right? Yeah. But, uh, well, first it's Kenya, and then yeah. what's interesting yeah. in classic X Men is she's from Harlem, and then they're yeah. like, yeah. "Just kidding, we're, she's from Wakanda." Yeah. <laughs> <You're> like, <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> all black people are the same, so we'll just represent all of them in one character, which is yeah. uh, which which is a problem. But again, we're looking at this in 2020 from 1972 eyes, which is. This is more than anybody had done up until that point. <laughs> right. Yeah. It's also what, you know, of course, Stan Lee was no longer really in charge of things, but it was the classic Stan Lee move. I mean, you look at his early 60s, um, uh, particularly in his World War II comics, he loved gathering platoons yes. of, you know, quote unquote, diverse characters. And and of course, there's also Star Trek, 1966, basically... Yeah. The, the the reboot or it wasn't reboot sorry um the restart up of the x-men was just it was captain kirk's bridge um yeah. so really it was not new <laughs> even then um it was a it was already a bit of a contrived idea um so they were sort of picking up on something that was culturally happening all around them and just did yet another iteration of it yeah and i mean in some of my academic work i've talked about it in conversation with post-colonialism and multiculturalism, for sure. And I think part of what happens from publishing is Lynn Wayne wrote the the Giant Size X-Men and then was started in 94. Chris Claremont came on as the the regular writer of the book. And he was an unknown at that time. Cockrum had done a number of books at that point. And it started out as a bi-monthly comic uh, coming out every other month. Um, And it just it kind of slowly built an audience till, what, two years later, it was their most popular book. Wow. In, in comics, is sort of a meteoric rise from here's a team of completely unknown characters to, oh, they're the best-selling characters in comics. Mm. And mm. I, I, some of that, I do think, is due to the, the quality of what Claremont was doing at that point. He yeah. was turning comics into a soap opera. They always had been to some degree, but he was doing it more than others. Um, Mm-hmm. It, felt like that, it felt like that to me reading at the time anyway. Speaking of soap operas, um, the person we don't have here, Andrew DeMond, his um, Twitter thread today was about Paul Smith's work on X-Men, which I follows, Paul Smith's run. Yeah, yeah, which is like in the aftermath of Dark Phoenix Saga and stuff. Because I think there's like a little bit of like a, I mean, I don't know what it is. It's like some sort of backwards continuity nostalgia or something where like Paul Smith has really become for like a lot of fans, like almost the definitive X-Men artist from that I, era. I know that he's like oh, wow. got an intense like fan yeah. love. And so I, like I'm I'm sort of like I definitely prefer him to burn. Like that is definitely yeah. if I oh. think about 80s X-Men, Let, I'm like that's the one. 
let, let me let me tell you my my Paul Smith anecdote. Then I went to Ooh, a convention do. and went to conventions let's see, eighty two in Pittsburgh. Uh, Paul Smith was one of three guests, along with um, uh, Joe Rubenstein, and I forget who the other one was. Um, Paul Paul had started drawing X Men. His first issue had not yet hit the racks. The only Paul Ooh, Smith wow. X Men work we had seen at that point was he did like one issue of Marvel Fanfare. Yeah, that, that had them in. Um, so he was essentially a complete unknown. It was his first convention ever. And he and my friend sort of bonded all weekend. Um, and he had a sketchbook with him wherein I saw his drawing of Storm with a mohawk. Yes, I was oh going, that's, my God. that's, that's mm-hmm. one thing I want to point out about that. Yeah, which, which his anecdote is he was just drawing that for fun and Claremont saw it and went, oh, we have to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, issue 173, by the way. Yeah, I, I saw a drawing he had done of Rogue. She hadn't joined the team yet. As I'm flipping through it, and yeah, I saw Rogue in Avengers Annual number 10, where she was first introduced. And I liked the character immediately. And I saw this drawing that he had done of her. And I'm like, oh, Rogue is awesome. She should join the team. And he looked at me and said, you've been looking at Chris's notebooks? Uh, <laughs> so, so, yeah, so I, I come in with Paul Smith love of just having met him really, really, really early in his, his career amazing. and seeing that stuff. Uh, and I, if you, if I you really, ever have a, if you ever talk to him again or have a relationship with him again, tell him how grateful I am for, <laughs> for his treatment of Nightcrawler in particular, in which that was the era I, that I definitely I, fell in love with him. Well, Caitlin pointed out that, you know, one of the problems with slash good things with me, how you look at with Storm are, you know, she's from Harlem or Kenya or Wakanda or who cares because, you know, we're just trying to represent everybody black in one character. But one of the things that I liked about that, um, that run with Paul Smith is, and, and, you know, I don't know if it's, I don't know if this is a lecture or if it's reading the issue because, because it is just issue 173 where he radically changes the look of storm um, you talked about like the male gaze issue, but he goes from yeah. her being this exotic African goddess to a, you know, to someone who came out of a punk club. You yeah. know, it's the, it's not well, just I, a Mohawk. I, it's I, the think, outfit. I think the storm costume change is included in like the trade paperback version of the Wolverine solo from 1982. And, mm-hmm. and I would mm-hmm. to back up. I was actually for the, the class. I was going to recommend we do the Wolverine miniseries as mm-hmm. as a, an adjunct piece to this. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think I'd, I'd second story. that one. It's, it would be very teachable. It's a very sort of confined story, and you get the transition mm-hmm. of Storm into Punk Storm, which is like, yeah, yeah. And, and, and her, and her romance the, with Yukio. Yeah, yep. is that the Frank Miller? Having, yeah, that's the Frank Miller one. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I think historically it's important. It was the first miniseries Marvel did, so sort of presaging oh, wow. a whole limited story. Here's a you know beginning, middle, and end in one volume kind of thing. Yep. The trade paperback collection, as you say collects the uh the essentially the japan stories from paul smith's run mm-hmm. which is a follow a direct follow-up to the wolverine issues it mm-hmm. allows us to do paul smith it also allows us to do the storm stuff so i think that trade paperback with all of that stuff in it is uh, an important piece and that story gives you subtly but it's there an entry point to start talking about very early queer representation in the yeah. x-men comics yeah. because there is a you know, you have to look for it and I can see how people missed it back at the time, but yeah. it is, it has been explicitly referenced since then that there is a lesbian relationship between Yukio and Storm that begins during that series. Mm-hmm. And also it's when Rogue comes onto the team. I mean, it's not the issue where she joins, but she's, she's there. And I yeah. think her as an important character. Um, I remember an interview someplace ages ago, Chris Claremont talking about 
you know, his one of his reasons for creating Rogue as a character is you know, all the strong female characters, and he was actually challenged. You, they all have these costumes that show a lot of flesh. And Rogue's powers is based on the idea of she can't touch anybody, so she needs to be covered head to toe. And and that was part of his motivation for her power <laughs> set. So any costume you design for Rogue has to cover her from head to toe and not show flesh. Of course, that's been changed over the years. Yeah, not always followed through. By yeah, but, but that was but that was part of the initial conception of the character. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So yeah, so I think those are worth. Um, In terms worth. of Storm specifically, do we want to? I know a couple of us were maybe going to vote for like as a standalone issue, Uncanny X Men number one eighty six, Life Death, a Love Story, but featuring yeah. Storm and Forge. That is, that is the next thing on my list. <laughs> yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What year are we in now? Is that, what year? X Men one eighty six is nineteen eighty four. Okay. Oh, okay. Great. Yeah. So that would have absolutely been on my list is yeah. uh, life, death, a lo- life, death, a love story, and the follow up, life, death two, which is X Men number one ninety eight. Um, mm-hmm. Not in the same collection, but again, if we're if we're looking at you know, assuming that our our students have have picked up a Marvel Universe collection app, I don't think that's a problem. One eighty six, especially, yeah. is not a superhero story. It nope. is uh, it is a story of Storm. And her boyfriend at the time, Forge, uh, at this point in X-Men continuity, Storm has lost her powers. She's lost her mutant abilities. And she is very much questioning without my without my mutant identity. Am I still who I was? Which I think is an important issue, given um, what we're talking about with representation, you know, um, as our central theme for this class. What does it mean to be? female or black or queer or whatever other that you're going to. Yeah. So she's lost what makes her her and she retreats to basically her boyfriend's apartment. No other X-Men live in no, no other X-Men appear in this story. It's just Forge who's not yet an X-Man and Storm. And then they're hanging out there and essentially falling in love. It's a love story. But then the story essentially ends when she finds out that through random comic book chicanery, he's responsible for her having lost her powers. And it's just that, such a great story for teaching. Yeah. yeah. Like just so many different levels of representation in X-Men and the interaction with the mutant metaphor is mm-hmm. it's a story about disability. Forge is a disabled mm-hmm. superhero. Yes. He's a Native American superhero. Native like, American there's like, there's, who lost his arm and his, his leg in one hand in Vietnam. So it's got, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> it's got a lot of things to discuss. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the artwork like is just amazing. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and his power is essentially creativity he can invent things so mm-hmm. not not a real typical masculine power either mm-hmm. he's a creative not your t- not your typical native american power either they're yeah. usually mm-hmm. magical right. characters stuff. and he's a technological yeah. character mm-hmm. yeah and in fact in fact he part of his backstory is and it's this has been changed since then but at that point he he comes from a very stereotypical uh native american ancestry where his where his family members wanted him to be kind of a shaman type character um, they wanted him yeah. to embrace magic and he is just like, hell with that. Nope. I'm going to, I'm going to invent stuff. And you know, I'm going to MIT or whatever. He did. Mm. You know, and, and that's, and that's kind of, that's kind of his character. It becomes, it is an entire story about what is identity. And I think mm-hmm. that that's, a, yeah. I, I think it's, it's short enough that I think that if you're going to teach it, you teach life death too, as, as well, which I don't like as much, but I think is sort of, I, I wonder for other people, maybe they'll like it better because outside of the context of knowing who these characters are and having grown up with them as I was doing at that time, um, life death too is storm after this just sort of leaves and goes to Africa to rediscover herself. 
and uh, and again she it's it's her going on basically a, a voyage of self-discovery which i think is a good coda to the story mm-hmm. but i don't i think life life death stands alone life death too does not yeah it needs the yeah, earlier story in order to work I agree. yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, I'll say in particular the scene from Life Death um, where they're swimming in the pool and it's like a romantic scene and a sexual scene, but then also just so many layers of power get discussed. Like Storm considers herself depowered because she's lost her mutant power, but then she realizes that Forge doesn't have his leg and that affects his ability to swim. So you get like Mm -hmm. all of these intersections about what power means like over the course of their negotiating, whether they're going to have a relationship. It's just it's a great, great, great Mm -hmm. issue. It's also visually a particularly good moment, if I'm recalling correctly, because she's in the pool and then she's climbing out of the pool and she sees his leg just lying there. Yeah. So it's really a pretty brilliant move. So we don't mm-hmm. see him take the leg off. and She no, doesn't no, you see him put it on. You see him climb. Right. Out. He, has, he right. has to crawl out of the pool. Right. It is, I mean, it's a very vulnerable right. picture for a superhero story right. where he crawls you know, because he can't walk. So he crawls over to put his leg back on, which is just brilliant, you know. And I think, you know, vulnerability is like the the thing that makes both issues really beautiful because in 182, Mav, like you were starting to point out, like there is this reclamation of Storm finding that that strength. And I think that speaks, as we're thinking about representation, especially a Black woman, I think that's something very powerful. Like this woman in this moment is like, realizing that she does have this inner strength and like saves uh, ultimately saves herself mm-hmm. i agree so, so um you know i think vulnerability and strength are like if we're thinking about like the narrative arc of all of x-men it's it's just it's really beautifully reflected in these two issues and you know okay. even the duality of that title that it's life death a love story and like it ends yeah. with storm like unequivocally rejecting forged yes. yeah <laughs> so i i think we're at the point in the continuity, just historically speaking, now we need to address the franchising of X-Men. This is, yeah. the, point, this is the point where New Mutants comes in and X-Factor comes in, etc. Yep. Uh, all the oh, series. I would love to talk about New Mutants. That's actually the, the top of my list. Yeah. Um, Figured somebody you know, we were We were talking about, you know, the importance of Neil Adams. Um, Bill Sienkiewicz is... Um, yeah, absolutely. It's just... <laughs> Now, it's interesting yeah. because he started out as a Neil Adams imitator, like when he was doing Absolutely. the Midnight series. But it was starting with issue 18 of New Mutants and his Demon run Bear. goes to 31. Yeah, with uh, Demon Bear. 1984, 1985. That to me is like is one of the most important um, runs of the 80s. And that's you know yeah. even against other, you know, canonical things. Sienkiewicz just what he did was. No one had seen anything like this in mainstream comics before. It was just extraordinary. And the character, I mean, Demon Bear, it was interesting because Demon Bear was introduced um, by an earlier artist. I think it was, um, I scribbled his note, um, Bob McCloud, and he just looks like a dorky bear, you know. Not a scary bear. No, not scary at all. Almost like comically not scary. And then some cabbage took over and it just was like, oh my God, what the hell is going on? Um, And I was was actually reading comics then and I saw the transition. When I, you know, when the demon bear issue came out, it was like the cover alone was what the hell is going on? It was interesting because this is also the moment where Painted covers was the new thing in around 1983. There was a defense, you know, but usually it was only the cover art. Um, but then you open up um, 
new mutants and you see this style that just had never happened before. Um, it didn't last. <laughs> I thought like that would be the um, a turning point in the history of superhero comics, but really um, Sinkavich and a couple others um, were, you know, mavericks, if you will. Um, and then it really kind of just Mark. returns to the standard style. And then, of course, the 90s happen and you just have to yeah. close your eyes for a decade. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think it, I, I think I agree. I think teaching that Sinkavich run is, is really important. I, would we include the first New Mutants, quote unquote, trade paperback, the, the Marvel trade paper, whatever they were being called at the time? That introduced the characters. I, I wouldn't I, include that. I would teach Demon Bear and the Slumber Party issue that directly follows it. Okay. Well, so I, you, I go, just, I you go eighteen enough. through what? Eighteen through twenty-two is what you yeah. what you what you would say, Anna. Yeah. Because yeah, my I, my jump would be. If, from, go ahead. I, I, just, I was going to say, I'm wondering if we need the other one just to introduce the characters. So nah. They, they nah. I don't know. Just jump in because because it, it it really does. I mean, formulaically, the early New Minute stuff is. I mean. Like here, I can I can do it as I as as I would teach it in the class. Okay, remember when we read X Men number one and we saw like how the character the class was introduced of Cyclops? Okay, so Professor X just does it again with new kids. Okay, yeah, moving on. Yeah, now we're yeah. at eighteen. <laughs> okay, here's okay here's here's a question: The Paul Smith issues that are in, included in the Wolverine miniseries do they include them coming back from space? Because we see the new mutants there. That might be in that collection. I don't, Ooh, remember. I don't, I don't remember. think it is, um, but okay. I don't have it in front of me right now. I'm like yeah. uh, not in my office due to pandemic reasons. Yeah. So, <laughs> yeah. Um, for our listeners, we just lost Caitlin. She had to leave as we record, so you won't hear her voice for the rest of the episode. But what I was going to say is, um, I would move from, I would move from the demon bear sort of saga I would move into as guardian wars. Um, there's a trade paperback of it. The, the drawback here is probably after demon bear, one of the most well-known new minute stories I'd argue is the shadow King saga, which I'd be skipping in order to get to the Asgardian wars, which is sort of the kids recovering from the shadow King saga. Um, and I, I, I don't know, like, I don't know that shadow King, it's a story that I like, but I don't know that from a academic teaching perspective, it offers anything that isn't offered by demon bear and better. Mm -hmm. So that's why I, I I get, you know, I'm going to say it at this point, and this just reflects where I was as a reader at the time. This is the point where my interest in the entire franchise starts going downhill. Mm Mm-hmm. And I don't know how much essential there is from this point on. There, there are things. Yeah, I've got a few. But, that, I mean, we're, we're going to be spottier for yeah. me too. Um, but I, we haven't even gotten fact, to my beloved Excalibur yet, guys. Come yeah, on. Well, <laughs> we, yeah, well, we're going to we're going to move. Yeah, we're going to because we're going to move yeah. for me too. Well, I, um, well, and that's it. In the, in the franchising stuff, I mean, we we've talked about New Mutants. Which other ones are kind of worth looking at? So, I mean, I considered repping Alpha Flight as a Canadian. Um, <laughs> I don't know that I would argue that it's essential necessarily. I mean, I might teach the like North Star comes out issue, not because it's good, but because it's historical right. and relevant. 
Um, mm-hmm. So I might put that on there. Um, I should look at what issue that actually is. They are in Asgardian Wars, but I don't necessarily think Asgardian Wars is amazing. I like Art Adams' artwork because I think that he is the best of what Image later tried, the Image artist later tried to replicate, which becomes the X-Men style for quite Mm. some time. Um, But I also, I just, I like that story because it shows the younger kids in recovery mode, you know, in a way Mm. that, yeah, you know, that frankly the summer party issue does too. But um, there's a lot of talk of trauma, problematic issues of in order to be powerful, you've got to be hot. <laughs> but um, but it's also it's also very much a rediscovering yourself issue, which um, which is you know frankly replicating a lot of what we've talked about in life death as well. So yeah, Asgardian Wars is a good one though too for having those kind of conversations about power and stuff. We actually did it on a three panel contrast um not too long mm-hmm. ago in conversation with House of X, Powers of X. So we clearly yeah, thought right. it was worth talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and my my next one after that, like, well, actually it should have been prior, but I did them out of order because I was sort of trying to get away from X-Men. Um, I actually had the Magic series, um, which is a Force okay. Limited series um, that introduces as a primary character. It introduces Ilyana Rasputin, mm-hmm. my favorite X-Men. My, my, <laughs> my answer to, to, to Nightcrawler for, for Anna is, mm-hmm. uh, is Ilyana. And it is how she it is how she comes to power um, for listeners. She is a she is a five year old girl who falls into a magic portal where she grows up and doesn't come back till she's like 16. And And, and the magic portal is hell. Yeah. Yeah. So she grows up in hell fighting for her life and taking over. That is that is the story of magic. She is Colossus's little sister. And if the New Minutes movie ever comes out, she will be in that. Mm-hmm. Oh, it has a release she's, date. She's I think. Andrew's favorite too. Yeah, she's right up there on my list as well. It's had many release dates. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> fair. Um, so that's yeah, that was in that was in my list. But again, I mean, so many of mine are you know, let's look at how. I mean, let's look at how one member of the team looks to be you know, looks when they are ostracized from the rest of the team. Because what mm-hmm. I find fascinating about, you know, about Storm during the life death run and about magic for her entire time is the X-Men is by definition a group of outcasts. They are others. They are, you know, whatever metaphor. And then here's the one person, you know, if all the out if all the outcasts are banding together in order to have like a sense of community. What do I do when I don't even fit in with the fucking outcasts? <laughs> and, and you can tie that back to the, the Paul Smith Japan issues when because Rogue comes in and yeah, you know, should they there's there's marvelous panel of her by herself. Um, so yeah, just as a theme, I think that's important. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd be good with doing the magic series. I think it's sort of one of those ones, just depending on your own interest, you could add it to the course or not. But yeah, that's like mm-hmm. would be a very mm-hmm. teachable one, I think. Anybody else got anything from this sort of time period? 1988. This is my this is one of my all time favorite comics, not even just within superhero comics. And um, it's a, it's odd, but um, Havoc and Wolverine Meltdown. It is have a trade. It's of that. actually I mean, you know, the writing is fine, um, but the artwork is revolutionary, even more than Sinkavich, because there are two artists. You've got John Muth and you've got Kent Williams. They both um, had worked at Epic, uh, at Marvel before this. What's fascinating is that there's a variety, there's so many ways for um, artists to work together. But of course, the standard conveyor belt system is um, scripter, hands, penciler, the script, penciler, sketches it all out. 
it goes to the inker, it goes to the colorist, it goes to the letterer. Um, what Muth and Williams did is Muth drew Havoc and Williams drew Wolverine. And even when they were on the same page, there would be two very distinct styles and they weren't working with pencils and inks. There were, um, Muth works primarily in watercolors and Williams works primarily in, um, oil paint. Uh, and so it's fascinating to see their their distinct styles interacting on the page. Um, it was looking at this comic that made me um, uh, one of the books that I'm working on right now is um, uh, trying to um, harmonize comics theory right now. And one of the terms I've been using is uh, an image narrator as unique from a text narrator. And what this um, miniseries does is reveal that there's really two image narrators, and one is the imagery connected to one character, so it's filtered or focalized through Havoc. The other is filtered through Wolverine. And it explains so much about the reality of a comic rather than seeing a um, drawn image as like a, I'm looking through a window into another world and this is what that world looks like. It's much more about a filtered, I'm, I'm seeing this real world through a, someone's mind. And this is how that mind is, in a, well, in this case, literally drawing it. So seeing these two artists work back and forth, um, sometimes one would do an entire page because Havoc would be over here doing something and, you know, Wolverine would have a separate um, adventure. But when they're merged, to see these two styles interacting on the same page, I really actually can't think of another comic that does this. Not, does not as drastically. I, I, yeah. mean, I, can yeah. think of, I can think of lots of comics where people where they've been yeah. drawn by multiple people, but yeah, uh, sure. like, comics, but... yeah or mini hands, <laughs> but many yeah, hands, right, right. but um, not as, not as drastically and as, as clear of a storyline. Uh, you know what? Oh, actually, you know where I can think of it happening? Um, underground comics, uh, specifically, uh, dirty laundry comics by, um, Crum and Kaminsky. Um, yeah. Com- they're, they're, they, they actually, they, they, during, I mean, certainly not mainstream, but sure. they did many comics, which they wrote together and he always drew himself mm-hmm. and she always drew herself. Nice. And then nice. eventually their child when old Sophie. enough, yeah, would also, yeah, Sophie would also draw herself into the comic as well That's so brilliant. it is extremely yeah. I mean, yeah. disjointed yeah. and obviously given i mean if you're familiar with crum and kaminsky's work sure. they sure. are crazy people mm-hmm. whom i love i mean yeah. I don't mean, that's not with, an insult with, they with are radically different styles yes yeah. and yeah. It, but it is it is that's the only thing i can think of where yeah. it is used that's as nice. an element yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah that's excellent no i'm gonna have to look that up that's perfect thank you mm-hmm. yeah that havoc wolverine series is wild i picked it up at a used bookstore like a couple years ago and i was just like well this is weird and yeah. Yeah, so I, haven't read, I haven't read that in so long yeah, I don't think yeah, I mean, the story out. is fine. It's it's very um, post Chernobyl, right? Um, <laughs> so very very nineteen nineteen eighties. But uh, well, we haven't talked much yeah. about it. But that is the atomic world is very much a theme, especially of the earlier X Men stuff. It sort of was almost dying out of X Men comics by the time Meltdown came out. But like yes. that was the you know they were children of the atom was what Stan called them back in the day. Right. Right. Are right. any of us interested in repping Dazzler the graphic novel as a historical document? Uh, oh, yeah. wow. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if I can make so many, read it. There's so yeah. many Dazzler fans out there. I don't want to let them down. <laughs> <laughs> um, there, was a, there was a movie treatment 
Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I will say that the first the issue, of Dazzler, the first issue of the Dazzler series, is historically significant in that it's the first direct sales only title from Marvel. Oh wow! Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, so he Just gets mentioned in, of, in my class. Yeah. Can you yeah, teach? I, mean, it? I don't. I don't know whether teaching like Dazzler the graphic novel is very effective, like in terms of teaching what's most interesting about it, which is that it was supposed to be this transmedia thing that never happened. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, it was a transmedia thing that that had one piece of media and therefore was not very. Trans. Um, yeah. <laughs> it was. It was. They had a whole thing. There was like going to be an album. There was going to be a, a concert tour and a movie. Oh wow! And, oh yeah, and then it was just a comic. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah, everybody no else was like, no one read. Yeah, and everybody else was. I mean, it's it's a thing. It's interesting, and and I. You, you well, know, I, I will mention that I mean, Dazzler becomes like a real focal point for a lot of queer fans in her 80s yes. series in particular. So, I mean, in mm-hmm. that sense, it's like worth mentioning. I mean, yeah. I might excerpt a couple of issues from it to talk about. More um, so than the graphic novel. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. I think it's worth, I think, I think it's, I don't know what to pick though. I think that Dazzlers are so hard to teach. Like, like you sort of have the, to like the issue where I'd have to look up what up. issue it is, but like the one where she goes to basically the lesbian bar and fights the Racine Ramjets has a lot of gender <laughs> stuff going on, and it has oh, a wow. Sienkiewicz cover, which is fabulous. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And then you mentioned it sort of eventually transitions into Beauty and the Beast, which um, mm-hmm. which Dazzler is the beauty of Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. and, and oddly enough, the Beast is. Yes, as the, the beast. beast. Yes, and they have a. They have a. You know, I haven't read it. I haven't read it in in you know decades. But what I remember as a very beautiful love story that was basically never mentioned again by any other writer. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it was it was a thing. <laughs> Yeah, I would. Con- I would. That would be my thing. Of like, if you're going to teach magic, I might do Beauty and the Beast on my course. I could. I could totally buy that. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I mean, the thing with the syllabus is like, you know, it, we 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 would all do this class very different, or slightly, or slightly different. I don't know if we do it very differently, but yeah, we're we're in a lot of agreement here with the basic mm-hmm. stuff. Yeah. Is this the um, point where course, I get to make my pitch even... for Excalibur? Like, are we there? Because yes. we made it to yeah. 1988, which is the launch of Excalibur. Yeah. yeah. All right. Yeah. yeah. And, well, and the, yeah, this is the, the, the franchising of the, the different stuff, because there's yeah. not much in X Factor that I would want to talk about. Um, well, you'll see you'll but, see where I put X Factor in on my, on okay, my list, because there's yeah, almost talk, nothing talk in X Factor I want to talk about. Go ahead, yeah, Excalibur. Talk about Excalibur, yeah. Okay, so if I was going to choose Alpha Flight or Excalibur, I would go Excalibur. They like kind of allow you to talk about some similar things in terms of like franchising and stuff. So the basis of Excalibur is that it becomes this UK-based um, superhero team founded by Kitty Pride and Nightcrawler after they get gravely injured in a fate with the Marauders and find mm-hmm. themselves at Moira McTaggart's Research Institute in Scotland and end up meeting up with Captain Britain and Megan and a resurrected Rachel Gray and forming Excalibur. So the one I would specifically wreck would be the mini that started it, Excalibur, um, The Sword is Drawn from 1988 by Chris Claremont and um, Alan Davis. I think it's the most teachable. I would say that Excalibur is like a uniquely unteachable text because it's all over the place. And uh, I like it. One of my favorite books, but yeah. Let's go on a a a cross-multiversal journey that starts in 
British and Marvel UK comics that literally none of our readers have access to or could have possibly yeah. read at that point. It was it was crazy. I want to pay I want to pay Alan Davis too to go back and redraw like because there's a huge part of the cross time caper which is like one of the definitive Excalibur arcs that like just has mm-hmm. a like a bunch of different artists and if Alan Davis had been drawing the whole thing I would teach that but he doesn't so I wouldn't. <laughs> um, yeah, um, a bunch of different artists and without mentioning names some of them are not good. Yeah, yes, <laughs> some of them are not good. Excalibur is really like a Claremont Davis like vision and anybody else doing it mm. is just like not kind of the same. Anyway, so yeah. sword is drawn. There's a number of things that you could use it to talk about. It's a female dominated team, which I think is really mm-hmm. great. You get three distinct female characters. You get kind of the Rachel mm. Gray character who's kind of quite aggressive and ultra powerful, but also like uniquely marked by trauma. She's from the days of future past world. You get mm-hmm. Kitty pride as like the teen genius. Who's like really coming into her own kind of during this era. You get um, Megan, who's like a very different type of character. On the one hand, she's kind of like a traditional feminine femme type character. And yet she's rendered somewhat monstrous by her powers as well. We're introduced to her in the sword is drawn where she's like mm-hmm. morphed into a dolphin person swimming in the sea. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah there's so much going on and i mean if you're a nightcrawler fan it's the yeah, definitive it nightcrawler, nightcrawler yes. series <laughs> it's like kind of the zaniness of excalibur the way it's kind of like this action comedy wacky mm-hmm. thing extends pretty directly kind of from the characterization of mm-hmm. nightcrawler and I, I always think about the um uncanny issue uncanny 204 like the whatever mm-hmm. happened to nightcrawler story where he has the zany adventure in like murder world arcades murder world and like saves mm-hmm. and, princess oh, yeah. and stuff which was totally out of step with like the more serious tone of x-men at the time yeah. that's like almost a trial run for excalibur what excalibur like, got massively right with nightcrawler was that he, you know, every, no, I shouldn't say every, most other writers sort of get, there are two paths you take with Nightcrawler. Either he is the ridiculous comedy character or he is the uber religious stick in the mud character. And oh, worst. he's not, he's both of those things. He yeah. walks that line perfectly. He is a religious guy. He is a deeply religious Catholic who also is just kind of the kooky class clown. And and also tortured by his monstrous appearance. Like he's got a lot going on and people tend to just take one route because like trying to write him in all three directions is hard. Um, I mean, the religious aspects of the character too are like relatively recent. That's like something that's really emphasized with the character. I mean, it's not Mm -hmm. present in Excalibur, like basically ever. It's a piece of his character. I've had a tough time really buying into. I mean, his like, his it, creator, it, Dave Cockrum, was violently against that as a yeah. plot point for him. There's, there's the scene, once again, in, uh, was this Paul, Paul Smith's run or, or Cockrum right before, when they're with the, the brood? And there's a great yeah. one-page scene of him and Wolverine talking about Yeah, it's religion. from the Paul Smith era, yeah. Yeah, and that one page is kind of brilliant, and, and I'm fine with that. But then you know, later, he's a priest, and like, no. Yeah, it's, no. Much, it's, no. No. Yeah. it's, it's going too much in the other direction. Like, they, like, he is supposed to be a real person. Like, he is, he, like having a guy who was ostracized from society and therefore took refuge in the church because no one was looking at him, I'm cool with that. Yeah. Like, yeah, that, I get that. <laughs> but, like, he... They just took it too far. And and I think Excalibur doesn't do that. Excalibur puts him in a place where he can be amongst his people and comfortable. Um, And it's just it's a really like in terms of I mean, again, this would be something that's impossible to teach, really. But it's like really like the character development for him in particular in that series. Like he does a lot of kind of reflecting on his original place within the X-Men. And, oh, I was just their fun loving mascot. And like they Mm -hmm. didn't take me seriously. But then he has this really wonderful character progression of becoming 
becoming a leader. And one of the great things about it, too, is that he's very like diminished in terms of his power throughout the series. So yeah. both he and Katie Pride start the series with their superpowers basically all out of whack. Like Nightcrawler can barely teleport anymore. And he doesn't really get his teleportation power back until like 50 issues in. And then right. Alan Davis comes back as both the writer and the artist for it. And for about 14 issues, Nightcrawler has a broken leg. So he doesn't yeah. even have his physicality. Yeah. And like, and yet that's like some of his best character growth. That's mm -hmm. like really when he grows into a leader, because if he is going to be just this sort of fun, loving joke character, his physicality is a big part of that. But having to make it more about sort of his interiority and his character and like taking away his physicality to do that is like, that's that's my that's my kind of Excalibur spiel mm -hmm. in terms of well, if you're that, a fan really of Nightcrawler at all. It's an essential series. It's fun. Those, it's so fun. When Rogue became the leader of the X-Men, she also did that when she lost her powers. It's interesting that mm. you've got these. Um, well, and, and Storm did. Too. And Storm did, too. Yeah, that's, Storm what, too, sorry, yeah. that's what I thought I said. Yeah. That's, oh, that's interesting. What um question about Nightcrawler, um, because I forget at what point, and I think it was retconned, and that's why it's hard to track. Um, I think it was one of those retconned pages into those um, reprints of um, classic. But he used to have, Nightcrawler used to have a... Um, a holograph disguiser. Yeah. Yes. So, um, and at some point, uh, and this was right conned in, I think it was a conversation with Wolverine. He decides he no longer wants to hide his appearance, which of course is a critical mm -hmm. detail for his character. I assume that happened before the Excalibur run. Is that correct? Um, I'm, not, I'm not sure whether that would have, I mean, he has the image inducer before that and, um, and yeah, doesn't use it throughout Excalibur. At but yeah. the, the, the yeah. classic X-Men story you're talking about is the big dare. And I'm yeah. not sure what uh, year that yes. is from. I would have to yeah. look it yeah. up. But yeah, yeah. He, does, okay. he, he, he certainly, I believe there are issues of Excalibur where he, oh yeah, I've got this thing, but, but he, he very rarely uses it by the time he's, he's leading Excalibur. Um, and especially in cross time caper there, most, most of that is so much out in the multiverse where there are all kinds of aliens far weirder looking than him running around. So yeah. And he yeah. gets to go to a whole world full of blue people. And then later in X-Men, the end marries one of them randomly. <laughs> yeah that's a deep nightcrawler cut for you <laughs> well so for i said i you know i'm not a huge x-factor fan um yeah, I, I'm not either. there's a lot of me wanting to like there's a lot of stuff that happens in x-factor that you know i want to like um my favorite stuff in x-factor are the moments that follow Richter and Rusty and Skids, who are the and Artie and Leech, who are the least important characters and eventually get spun out of the book. Mm -hmm. um, um, but since we're talking about the franchising series and since it just sort of almost perfectly leads into um, into Anna's pick right there of Excalibur and in fact was the storyline that caused it. I actually put on the trade paperback for the Munit Massacre. Um, okay. And that was because of where I was going with like sort of all this othering and all of these ostracized people. The Munit Massacre is a genocide that happens in the Morlock tunnels. The Morlocks are these are the mm. Munits who aren't even as, as acceptable enough to live at the X-Men schools. So they live in tunnels. And then one day a group of bad guys is hired to go in and exterminate them all. And they just do a genocide in the tunnels. And so the X-Men and X-Factor, which is another team and the new units all sort of um, 
and Thor and Daredevil for some reason. Uh, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll, I'll go down there. And, oh, and Power Pack. I think for one issue, Power Pack, because they're it's, they're in the tunnels under X under New York City. So there's a genocide. So a bunch of heroes go down and try to save people and they fail. They largely fail. And just the, the, the unit population of the tunnels is just decimated for these four months. And during that time period, um, Kitty and and Kurt are brutally hurt. And that's that's why they end up having to go off and, and form Excalibur because they're recuperating on on Mer Island. But so I mean, I'll I say like one other series. thing that like, one of the things that I mean, in terms of Excalibur as kind of a genre mixing book and in terms of it sort of extending from the things that I like about Nightcrawler, the fact that it's like a team founded in trauma, but responds to that trauma with joy. Mm. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. I agree. Mm-hmm. I don't love the story unit massacre. I just feel like it was a important changing point. <laughs> yeah, right yeah. in there's where I started losing track of, of all the crossovers. So many teams. So many So many teams. So many crossovers. Because the next the next year after that they do follow the mutants and the year after that they do Inferno. And it's just like and follow the mutants is only a crossover because they all say follow the mutants on it. Like the teams never even see each other. And it, 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 it's very right. it'd be this is the beginning of event driven um writing yeah. in Marvel <laughs> and, and yeah. it just becomes tiring. But I I feel like at least Munit Massacre has something to say. Inferno has something to say as well, but it, it's not very good. Um Fall of the Munits has something to say in the new Munits issues, which you know we were talking about Sinkevich before, but this is the Brett Blevins era, which um is somebody I actually also like. It was he had a very different he, he was very distinctive looking from what a lot of the other comics were at at his time. What was the name of the artist? Brett, Brett Blevins. Blevins. Yeah, I oh, that's, okay. that's right. one I didn't read much of. Yeah, well, it's the it's where um, what's interesting about the Fallen Munit story is it's it's where New Munits, which was always the kids book of the X-Men series, you know, they they were largely protected. They go on a mission and uh, Doug uh, Cypher, their least powerful member, gets killed. <laughs> because they because they're a bunch of kids going on a superhero mission by themselves when they were told not to and one of them dies because of it and that and and yeah. it changes the direction of the book for for quite some time after that so it's interesting but not i don't know i don't know that it's teachable <laughs> yeah well, if you want to get genocide in there because clearly sorry um, <laughs> we skipped over uh, and i'm surprised um god loves man kills 1982 oh my god yeah because yeah. Well, yeah, right. that's in my graphic novel section which is the next thing but yeah graphic novels yeah. another it's the only graphic novel i have um after that i have movie or well, i have two um sort of god loves man kills which is yes yeah yeah i did reread it for this pod and it had been a <laughs> while and like yeah it is kind of indisputably a very teachable x-men text it is yeah. sort of like all the x-men stuff is in one book and you can kind of just teach it from there mm-hmm. and it's um it's wonderfully dated <laughs> i mean it is, it is. dated which yeah. is useful actually i mean like the use of the n-word um yeah it's startling to see that you know in 1982 mm-hmm. i don't know it's it, it's interesting it's an interesting book it was uh, it's a shame that neil adams didn't draw it he originally was the artist and then um, oh. the brennan anderson artwork though is, is still quite good but uh, it was interesting that that actually would have been a neil adams um mm-hmm. graphic novel yeah that would have been interesting yeah i mean I'll, I'll note too that like i think the first page of it is like um a black child getting shot as well like yep. graphically yeah. on panel 
it is the, it is the time when Marvel in 1982 said, yes, everything that we're doing with the X-Men is a metaphor. We want you to know that we are doing civil rights. We are socially aware. We are letting you know this. We Marvel Comics writers of the X-Men. <laughs> and that's it. And it's like, yeah. and then it's like, and the bad guy is a Bible thumping preacher who's like, yeah, religion says that mutants are bad. And they're like, but that's just like race. And it's like, no, it's not. It's different because I'm saying so right now. Yeah. And they're like, no, it's not. And, and that's well, the story of God loves man kills. <laughs> I mean, I'll say like that kind of that story is good for talking about the problematics of like mutant representation in a character like Nightcrawler too, who comes to to stand for kind of every prejudice which is like ridiculous yeah. and problematic because it flattens everything yeah. out because he just includes every like other group which is like nonsense because we're starting off with like a black child getting shot and then like Nightcrawler becomes like this emblem and I'm like ah it's not great yeah. <laughs> it's not great <laughs> it's kind of like that problem of how like the mutant metaphor almost like includes too many people and then you have exactly. some of those intersectional discussions getting lost mm-hmm. yep. Yep. but I mean that's a very that's a text where you can teach that concept mm-hmm. I think so God loves man kills for intersectionality. Um, that's my last comic. Everything else that I have is, um, well, the only other one I have is, that I was going to say for the end is Hawks Pox, but I don't know even how much yeah. anyone, um, and, and, and we've talked for two hours and we're up yeah. to 1980. Yeah. So, yeah, so, so yeah, everything else I have is, I mean, I had um, just old man Logan, um, but more Logan, the movie, because I think it's a better representation than Logan, than old man Logan is, which is old man. Logan's great if you're a comics fan, but like too much to teach. Um, so I had that and I had the, um, the X-Men animated series, uh, season one and season three, which do the Dark Phoenix saga and Days of Future Past. So, and, and, yeah. and completely skipping, you know, all the, the early 90s and... Yes. <laughs> yes, yes please skip the nineties. Yes. Yeah. Should, should we do a follow up episode? Is this a two semester course? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's, it's it's weird because I think that stuff's important, but I think it's a deviation from like if you're going to go into stuff like when we talked about X Men number one, um, which is very much a recreation and, and sort of a retelling of of what's in the first one. In the first, yeah. I mean, giant uh, X Men number one, new X Men number one by Jim Lee and Chris Claremont, very much is readdressing what happened in that Stan Lee and Jack Kirby book. But you know, I mean, even down to the cover is a very is very well, much a recreation I, of it. I, I just watched uh, there was a Claremont documentary I just watched on Amazon Prime, and they do kind of talk about how you know, the the new young creators coming in in the early nineties and you know, the Image guys, what became known as the Image guys, you know, they grew up with this stuff and they kind of wanted to do their take on it. Claremont was so wanting to move forward. And I do believe a little burnout at that point in his career. It had been 15 years. The new new guys came in and just wanted to reset everything. So like all the character development he had done with Magneto over the years. Nope, he's a bad guy again. Look, missiles, asteroid M. And it was in many ways, the the, the X-Men number one from the early 90s, the best selling one was a reset of everything Claremont had done. And I think that has continued for a long time since then as well. Mm-hmm. Well, in terms of like stuff from the 90s, that's post 90s stuff. Would we include anything of Deadpool on this course? Uh, the, well, the first movie, yeah. <laughs> the first movie, because I think anything else, anything else in the comics, I know people love Deadpool. I don't, but it's not even about whether I love him or not. It's about I think that Deadpool is its own course that requires such an understanding in the Marvel Universe in order to really enjoy or you're either you're just enjoying him shooting stuff and acting weird or you're deconstructing on a level that is not really about the X-Men. It's about deconstructing Marvel comics. Um, I think that the first movie is watchable in a vacuum and that's it. Yeah. Well, and, and that's it. I mean, at this point, do we rule out you know, new mutants, X-Force, all the things that happened in the nineties? Do we, 
do we stop the course at the end of the Claremont run? <laughs> I feel awful about doing that because that is like stopping us like at a point where like the X universe still isn't that diverse and stuff. I mean, we're not including right. yeah. things like their first yeah. gay wedding. Like we're not including right. things yeah. like right. the further diversifications of the universe in the 21st century. I mean, I think we'd have to think and it might have to be another pod. Like if you were going to do a 21st century X-Men course, what would you choose? Yeah. Well, and maybe that's it. Maybe it just goes through, you know, maybe that's it. Maybe there is a definitive break that is, you know, the X-Men through, um, you know, through the image, the the image years, and then there's a course that starts. You know, and I know it's not image comics because they all left, right. right? Yeah, but yeah. but we have no better the X Men through that that era, which is the very end of the Claremont run, um, and you know, probably a year after that, because he wasn't writing all that stuff. Like I think that um, the stuff that Louis Simonson's doing in, in New Mutants is great. You know, yeah. so um, so so I think there's there's that era. But what it becomes is very much something different, which becomes uh, it becomes a book about the franchise and about the teams and their interaction and different their different beliefs rather than how individuals live within this other community. Um, I agree, I but there's been a lot yeah. of good kind of 21st century minis that you Absolutely. could do like you could do like Jamie oh, Madrix yeah. multiple man like as like mm-hmm. a good teachable yeah. one and stuff. So I, like, I mean, it's sort of about, about picking things that would intersect in inter- interesting ways with that older stuff. I, I mean, I had uh, and the, the reason I skipped it because I said I was done with all with comics other than the movies. But the very last thing on my list is um, is House of X. And I have Hox Pox, which you know, for for non-comics fans, House of X, Powers of X is a very epic um, series that was just published last year that tries to reestablish what the X-Men are within the Marvel Universe. And it is, is it 12 issues between the two of them or? Between the, yeah, between the two. Okay. Six issues of, and it was, and it was collected all as one piece. Yeah. Six issues of House of X, six issues of Powers of X. It grows back, goes back and forth. And my argument would be for this class, I would want to teach House of X. I find powers of X very interesting. I don't think it, I don't think it fits in. I don't think it's necessary, even though it flushes it out to make it a full story. I think when you read, when you read both of them in the order that they're supposed to be read in, Mm -hmm. it's all one, it's all one story. I don't, I no longer separate them when you read them. Right. All all as one piece. If you're reading it as, if you're reading it, not that way, I think powers of X is not as interesting if you're not enough of a geek. Yeah, I think no, it's no, emblematic yeah, of emblematic of the unteachability of 21st century X-Men comics. Yes. 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 There you go. Yeah. yeah. yeah another, another way to think about this course, though, um, Matt, I think you said earlier, you know, there are courses that are focused simply on one author you named Shakespeare, among others. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one, of my, one of my frustrations sometimes with comics is the... Um, the the fact that we don't organize around authors, we organize mm-hmm. around characters or teams or series, which strikes me as um well, I mean obviously it's it's there are reasons why you want to do that as well, but I don't see courses that are organized around authors. So of course the fact that Claremont has sixteen years plus mm-hmm. other works connected, if everything on the syllabus was written by Claremont, obviously there's going to be multiple artists because that would mm-hmm. reduce it too much. But if you only allowed Claremont works on the syllabus, that would be focusing on an author instead of simply on who's your favorite character. Except for right. if I was going to do that, I wouldn't do if I, w- I would have gone a different direction and picked a bunch of Claremont stuff that wasn't X-Men. And that's right, the tricky right, part. Right, right. It's, it's, it's so the, the problem is with um, 
for mainstream comics, not for the indie guys and the creator owned stuff, but for mainstream comics, the problem is since the authors are, you know, so the characters are owned by the corporations. And so the authors can't, there's no guarantee of, of stability. Like the reason Andrew is doing the Claremont run is not just because Claremont's good, but because a 16 year run on one book is phenomenal um, in, in any age of for, I mean, that's it. Lee didn't do that. Stan didn't do that. And he was the only writer working for part of that time. (laughs) And he wasn't, Mm. he wasn't there for what's his entire, his entire, his longest run is like, I think nine years. Fantastic. 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 Yeah. yeah. And it's like nine years. I mean, so Claremont almost doubled that. It's a remarkable achievement that I think is hard. Yeah. Yeah. So, so. Um, what do we want? What do we want to end on? Do we want to wrap our favorite X Men movies then? Like well, as a I w- capstone? Uh, I want to see because we've got a bunch of books. I want to see. I want to just go through them real quick and see. Yeah. What, I'm going to put a star next to stuff that I think was would be essential because I think that the answer for this one more so than like the other syllabus episodes is I think you're we're going to require people taking the class get a subscription to the to the app. But so like I kind of want to go through and say what would be essential reading and what would be something that you say is a recommended possible independent study project. You know, if we have, you know, everybody's got to read these 10 books and then you can read other stuff to do your, you know, your project on. So X-Men one to three, I think you can just say, because I mean, it would take like, frankly, it's, it's 60 pages and I think it would take you half an hour to read. (laughs) Anybody against that one? Nope. Good with me. Yeah. Uh, the next thing we talked about was um, X Men Volume Two, Number One, which was the Jim Lee thing. Which I think, if we we could separate out, if we did the two different versions of the class, we wouldn't necessarily need it. That could be a spring thing. Could be. I'd probably include it if I was gonna, just because it's again, it's the best selling comic of all time. If you're gonna talk about sort mm-hmm. of revisions and reboots and like just it's it's emblematic the of the thing. style of the '90s, yeah, I would end it. I oh, would the end last. With it. I think yeah. that would be like yeah. yeah. Yeah, maybe that's the last comic. Um, nice. Next, um, the unless next you, thing. Unless you take the take the advanced course. Yeah, yeah. Um, X Men by Thomas and Oh yeah, X Men by Thomas and Adams. The gallery edition is um has, that collects um that that's the Neil Adams run that collects fifty six through yeah. um, sixty five. Yeah, I think that's important. Okay. I'm there. Um, explain the gaps. Not okay. 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 So the next thing that um we have is Amazing Adventures number eleven, which is the the Beast Turns Blue. I like it, but I don't think you need it. Yeah, that's probably that's probably someone's optional. individual. Yeah, individual optional yeah. thing. Um, I, I think I think mentioning it in the class, but not requiring it. Mm-hmm. Um, Beauty and the Beast by Ann Noxini, which I love, but I don't think I can. Get yeah. for, for I can. I don't well, think I'll, I can force I'll, it. I have it on my course, but optional. Yeah, I think there's going to be some of that where we each where we each customize it. Um, so then we have giant size one dark Phoenix days of future. I, I think that all of that, you can just say, um, you can just say, like I said, X-Men classics volume one and two. Okay. And that, that gives you giant size and all those stories. And it doesn't, it honestly, it, the, the thing with the class like X-Men is unlike some of the other graphic novel courses where we're talking about 200 page books, when we're talking about one book, it's 22 pages. This is not heavy reading. <laughs> Right. Um, but I would say the, the dark, I would say the, um, the, that also includes, you know, and days of future pass. Okay. Um, Wolverine miniseries. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think so. With, with the, those Japan issues after, which mm-hmm. because of the storm stuff and the rogue stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm voting for that too. Okay. Then we have life, death one and two. 
True. I would definitely teach it. Um, it some of that might be a bit repetitive of like of uh, the Wolverine mm-hmm. series, but I mean, I don't know. I think it does some different things, and I would vote mm-hmm. for it. Yeah, it probably. I think it fits into that same series because it's it's very much a self discovery of of Storm that mm-hmm. section. Okay, so now we're get, now we're moving away from X Men. This is where we had New Minutes, and we named eighteen to twenty one. I mean, that's the Demon Bear Saga, which I think yeah. if you want to teach any New Minutes, I think that's the one. Yep. Um, I think you can skip Asgardian Wars, even though I love it. Not essential. Sure. Yeah, I think Demon mm-hmm. Bear would be better. And magic is what I teach the week that that um, that Anna's teaching um, yeah. Beauty and the Beast. <laughs> I can't. I can't fight Beauty for and it. the Beast. The, the Beauty and the Beast trade too. I'm looking at it now. It includes Dazzler graphic novel, so I can do both. Oh wow! Okay, there you oh. go. <laughs> and would I be teaching Meltdown during that same week? Well, that was the next thing on the list. Um, I yeah, I, I think there. Yeah, I think there's a week where it's like where where we have professors professors favorite which is which could be yeah. which could be magic uh, could, could be magic could be um could be uh beauty and the beast could be meltdown what would you pick for that week Wayne? I uh, magic is on my list i need to, i have to give some more thought because mm. yeah they're, they're not the iceman miniseries yeah <laughs> <laughs> and then we have excalibur sword is drawn i think so i think you keep it um because well, well it's it depends. A great the Alan Davis artwork is great for teaching sort of like visual character work too. So I think there's mm-hmm. a lot you can do formally with it. Yeah. 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 Well, I would put Mutant Massacre before it because it, uh, because it leads into it. Mm-hmm. I would put Mutant Massacre in particular because it's what, like if you're going to do, if you're going to do, and here's where we move into the franchise era and here's where there's the crossover era and that leads to the Excalibur stuff. So I would do Mutant Massacre because it's where Nightcrawler gets hurt <laughs> and then, and then, and then move into Excalibur. I would okay. argue you don't need to read Mutant Massacre, but I'm okay for including it. Yeah, I just um, and then <laughs> so, and then somewhere and then somewhere, I think you gotta fit God loves man kills. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would include it. It's like one of the mm-hmm. most teachable X Men texts. So and like yeah. it's teachable not because it's perfect, but because it's problematic right. in all the emblematic ways that X Men is problematic. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Okay. Well, I think that's actually that's actually not bad. We've got okay. No. So we've I, got I think for, for for my week I'm gonna do the X Men Teen Titans crossover just to confuse people. Oh wow. Oh I thought about that. Yeah. That would be interesting. I, I I actually did think about it. I'm like, eh, what do you learn? But yeah, it'd be yeah. interesting. Um yeah, I I'd have to give it more thought, but I actually think that there's something there's something yeah. there. Just yeah. counting. I, I think um I think this is a 13 week course. I mean, I think that you because and then if you end on if you end on X Men V two number one, um I think you've got a 13 week course that, you know, All right. is I, I think you could teach it. I think that it's customizable to especially with the, you know, you have the professor's choice week and then, and then you have. Um, so we have four sections where we're each doing a different professor's choice. And then you have um, you have a week where, you know, you have some a week where students do their own their own creative projects. And, you know, they'll they'll toss in a dead man movie or a Logan or something, you know, <laughs> um, so I, I think that maybe they could here. be maybe they could be specifically required to pick a 21st century series and do a project on that. And that would be a way to mm. incorporate that. That would be amazing. Yeah, yeah. yeah that's actually good. Because yep. because one of the things that I mean, one of the things that so, we could certainly offer recommendations. With that. Yeah. Because yeah. I mean, well, doing something I, like the Iceman solo, like him reckoning with his gayness or something like that, mm-hmm, I think would be mm-hmm. something the students would really respond to. Well, but like, mm-hmm. again, like, you know, in terms of well, yeah, cause a classic lot of the, essential stuff. Yeah. Because we shied away from, I mean, looking at our comments, um, a lot of the listeners, um, rec- oh, I should actually mention real quick. Uh, Andrew had his recommendation. Um, his big one was X Men two fifty three through two fifty five, which is the battle for Mer Island. It's no main team members, and it is 
Um, I didn't go oh, into yeah. it too much. It is a brilliant story where the lead character, such that it is, is Forge, who's the character yeah. Yeah, from yeah. Uh, from the Life Death story, and um, he and it 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 covers a lot of the same ground that Excalibur does, which is what does it mean to be a mutant and to be an X Man if you're not one of these primary characters who are yeah. normally so if you're not Wolverine or Cyclops or Storm, you know, or Jean Grey, you know. What if you're Jamie Madrox, the multiple man, you know, mm-hmm. you know, what mm-hmm. if you're strong guy, Guido? Yeah. And in terms of the franchising, Peter David asks, answers some of those questions in his run of X Factor, which is yes. really good. Mm-hmm. But, but so, we don't have time for it here. Well, and, and, that's, and I think that's the 21st century, you know, well, actually it's yeah. late nineties when yeah. he starts, but yeah, but yeah, those are, those are some of those things that people could do a later project on. So yeah, I think that's an, I think that's not an entry entry course, but I think it's a, I think it does cover a pretty, I mean, we're taking a historical segment and sort of teaching different things. So yeah. dare I say it, did we resolve something? I think so. I, I think we have a pretty good syllabus. <laughs> I mean, we obviously we resolved nothing because we don't do that on this show. But, right. <laughs> but, but for an extra long episode, I think, um, I think we have some, I think we have an interesting reading list. And what I was going to say before is what I think is great about it is when we asked for comments, a lot of the listeners, like one of the things that was recommended the most from on our, on our call for comments was people were saying, well, I like the age of the, the age of X, or I like the, you know, the, um, um, the age of apocalypse, age yeah. of apocalypse, or, you know, and it's like, well, this is one of the things that happens is obviously the com- the memory of a comic with fan is usually about 10 years long at most, you know, the best stuff yeah. is always the last 10 years and we didn't even get there. So I think that, I think that's interesting though, because probably people, people do know apocalypse stuff fairly mm-hmm. well. And I mean, no one was ever going to recommend onslaught garbage, uh, but, yeah. but, um, but I mean, I don't, I don't think we need to teach a course. I mean, I think you could, but I think it's, I think it's interesting to, um, particularly with this new minutes movie, that's never going to come out because Wayne cannot be allowed to win the box office. Game. Um, <laughs> and if I, it comes I, out, I might win because it's the only movie that'll come out. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> I, I do think it's interesting to like, look at a demon bear. Yeah. Particularly with the artwork, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, if people like, if, if you've learned nothing from this podcast, click on the link that's on in the show notes to down to, um, to buy the, the demon bear saga from Amazon, because seriously, it's something you need to own. Yeah. Yeah. I got it right here. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, or, or better yet in this age of, of pandemic order from your local comic shop. Cause they need oh, it. Yes. Absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause um, well, the, they're opening next week, hopefully. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, but yes. Um, hopefully we gave people a lot of stuff to read, uh, a lot of stuff to think about. It was probably, I haven't, you know, at recording time, it's been really long, but after editing, I don't know, this is going to be one of our longer episodes, but I think it was yep. a good conversation. So. Yeah. Um, I do want to thank all of our guests for joining us since she had to leave. Um, I will, um, plug Caitlin's project. Her, her academic project is, um, called the uh called rescuing while black unleashing black female superheroes and she has a website where she is charting the um the history of black superheroes within the superhero genre going back as long as it is and uh, or black female superheroes specifically um though she talks about male ones as well there aren't that many because you know yeah. of the other yeah. population of of female superheroes and the other population 
of um, male of, of black superheroes. The intersection is not that great, but yeah. it is more than just Storm. And so she tries to sort of chart that and talk about that. And it's one of the it's one of her academic projects that she's been working on for a while. So that will be linked in the show notes, as will um, Andrew Demon, who um, could met, could not be on with with us because of technical difficulties. So we will link to the Claremont run, his Twitter account, which has a lot of great analysis. I mean, seriously, yeah. he's great. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, it is, it is um, responsible for getting me back into X-Men comics over the last four months. And I have been eternally grateful for that because I have yes. needed that stress relief. <laughs> so yeah, yeah. So we'll, we'll link to Andrew's thing and I will link to frequent guest in front of the show. D- Joe Dorowski um, has a book called X-Men and the Mutant Metaphor, Race and Gender in Comic Books, which mm. is probably the definitive academic text published on the x-men and um you know we had we had we just couldn't get joe to fit into the schedule this week so otherwise he would have been here to pimp it himself but definitely if you're interested in an analysis of comics specifically the x-men i would recommend his book and then everybody else has one so i'll let them go themselves um anna you're first because you're on the you're on list where where can people find you um, they can find me by Googling me. One of my X-Men articles is free on academia.edu if they look me up. I did something about representations of multiculturalism in Alpha Flight versus the X-Men, which you're, is free for you to read. I also did something specifically about my love of Nightcrawler recently for the website Baltic Culture I, I called Till Death horrible. Do We Part, yeah. um, <laughs> my undying love affair with undying superheroes. Um, and that's, also, a br- that's a brilliant article because it is it is the it is the perfect and I mean this in the nicest possible way. It is the perfect perfect marriage of academic analysis and utter fangirl gushery. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> an article that Honestly, I've ever read. Which is like, something we all aspire to. Yes. <laughs> the piece was originally like a lot more about how sexy Nightcrawler is, and I toned that down a lot. <laughs> maybe this will be a bit more accessible taking um, the angle uh, could, that I did could, take. Could, could you send us the first draft? Um yeah. <laughs> well that would be just that would be just my fan fiction, I think. But um, <laughs> but, um yeah, I am also the co-host of Three Panel Contrast along with Andrew Demand who couldn't be with us. Um, you can find that podcast wherever podcasts are found. And I have a mm-hmm. book coming out. I'm an, an anthology that features a lot of X-Men content called Super Sex, Sexuality, Fantasy, and the Superhero. And it is available for pre-order now. Okay. Excellent. All linked in the show notes. And Chris, what about you? Uh, probably the, um, my, the, my book that connects most to this topic would be Superhero Comics um, from Bloomsbury Press. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a couple others, but um, I think that's going to be the one to link to and uh, really fill in a lot of details around the things we've been talking about. You also have a blog. Yes. Uh, the patron saint of superheroes. I blog every Monday there. Mm-hmm. And we will link that in the show notes. Chris is Chris writes a lot of, of articles. So yeah. Yeah, you're, you, you are quite prolific. Thank you. Um, yeah. So uh, all of that linked in the show notes. Wayne, what about you? Boy, I, I'm really feeling like a slacker today. I don't have any of that stuff. <laughs> <laughs> you brought us that Paul Smith story, which made yeah. my day. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I, I have a lot of history. I should write more of it. I, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, just this yeah. is the same old places. Nothing new yeah. this week. Yeah, and you can follow me on Twitter at Chris Maverick or on my blog at chrismaverick.com. 
You can follow the show on Twitter or Facebook or Instagram, all the places, always at Vox Popcast. You can follow the show's blog at www.voxpopcast.com, where we talk about whatever we're going to be talking about next week. And you can chime in. You can give us your thoughts. You can also give us our thoughts on on shows that have aired like this one. Let us know. What did you agree with? What have you read? What did we miss? Because I'm sure there's a lot and people are going to be like, how did you not talk about the time <laughs> that Kitty Pride said, screw you, Professor X? And, you know, which is funny. Um, <laughs> or no, actually, I guess it's Professor X is a jerk, which is yeah. um, there, there's a brilliant poem in a collection of poetry that I have uh, superhero poetry that just talks about the professor is a jerk is a jerk moment. It's Aww. great. Um, I'll, send it, I'll send it to you guys. I, te- I actually teach it in one of my, in one of my um, literature classes. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so we will let us know what your favorite X-Men stories are that we missed. Let us know if you, if you took one of our recommendations and you read it and you're like, Oh my God, demon bear is amazing because it is you know <laughs> you know then let us know and if you enjoy the show and i certainly hope you do because otherwise why have you been here all this time this was a long episode um please subscribe to us on itunes or stitcher or spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and do us a favor leave us a five-star review on itunes that helps other people find the show it makes us more popular we can keep bringing content to you and you know hopefully we'll get sponsors one day so i can afford to go out and buy comics which i hear they're going to start making again soon so <laughs> i mean you know, I need that, you know, very poor grad student. Um, I would like to thank Maximilian of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song, building ever so more epically and playing us out. I'd like to once again thank our guests for joining us and you for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Oh, yeah, Charles, we got ourselves an X-Men fan. You do know they're all bullshit, right? I mean, maybe a quarter of it happened. In the real world, people die. <laughs>